The Football Pod. Colin O'Rourke said that in punditry today, that colour, wit and enthusiasm is missing. Tune into The Football Pod. <laughs> Paddy Anders and James Dunne will bring it for you. Subscribe to The Football Pod wherever you get your podcasts. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. It's Thursday morning and we are live on OTBAM at half past seven. Uh, the whole gang are here. Uh, Kathleen's here. Kathleen, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm all good. Shane? How are things? Good morning. Colm's also here. Colm. Thursday morning. You how can hear you? me okay, can you? I can, yeah. Can yeah, you yeah. Colm's live and glorious technical. You lean into the mic there, Colm. You're, uh, you're a bit far away. <laughs> Everyone have a good night, yeah? Very good night. Good morning as well. First yeah. time Manchester City will ever play Inter Milan in a competitive game. In fact, it's the first time sides have met in a Champions League final for the first time since... I'll put it out there. Something to do with Valencia? Something to do, exactly to do, with 2005 Istanbul. Oh, AC wow. Milan versus Liverpool. Really? Yeah, the there you go. And in the Champions League. Eating. And then they couldn't stop two years later. Of course, they've forgotten final 07. People in Zaghi, Dublin. And here we are again. Inter, the only side... Well, one of two sides who could stop this treble. Doesn't look like it's going to happen, though. No. Riga Delaney writing the obituary of football last night. Yeah, one of two sides is that. Feeling less like it's a why. why writing why, why the obituary of football last night that uh, Manchester City enjoy the dominance, enjoy the incredible display against Real Madrid, but is this the end of football as we know it? Wow. What a That's bleak, a big one for this one. time of the morning. <laughs> do you think it is the end of. Do you agree with me, well, the dominance is uncomfortable. However, the football, that, is, ex- the football just, is exhilarating. Is that, a, is that a direct quote, yeah? Yeah, well, that's the, that's the article that he wrote last night and, uh, okay. on, on the whistle. It was brilliant. Would you say this, is, like, this marks the end? Is it not already kind of happening? In the sense of well, like, your cities that take all the players and all the money? And yeah, nothing's new from this time yesterday. The difference is that they've absolutely annihilated the defending champions. Winners of five of the last nine Champions Leagues. Madrid didn't put a thing on them. Staying on it though, because you're watching those unbelievable goals last night, and that performance in the first half was one of the best footballing performances you'll ever see. And yet, in the back of your mind, you're thinking over 100 alleged financial fair play breaches over nine years, and you can't get that out of your head. I, I can't get that out of my head. Oh, the first time Even as I'm watching this beautiful football. I don't believe you. I don't no, genuinely. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, literally, like, I'm enjoying not, the f- As the goal goes in, you're like, ah, oh, you're just No, like, no, no. Wow. But, like, but across the entirety of the, the 90 minutes. You're, Before you're, and after you do. But the whole point of sports watching, that, the reason that it works is that you forget that the thing is so beautiful. Like, that's how this all works. I'd, maybe, maybe you have the ability, and that's fair play to you. High moral standards, yeah. yeah, yeah. Very, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> most football fans just get sucked in watch the game and go this is incredible this is the high as, as Nathan pointed out in the aftermath of the first leg this is the highest level of football that you're ever going to see mm. like, and it's getting higher and higher and uh, the quality that we saw on display on the field last night was absolutely sensational I, I do think that maybe um, uh, there's, there's a lot to be played out yet with, with respect to the, the money that's really important to remember that it's possible that City gets stripped of this or that uh, something happens to prevent them becoming uh, all singing, all dancing, all conquering at the same level, at European level as they have been at the Premier League. So if they were to win five out of the next six uh, uh, Champions Cups, you'd be like, um, Champions Cups, European Cups, mm. Champions Leagues, you'd be like, uh, okay, fair enough. But I, I mean, I, 
um, I do remember like uh, Real Madrid losing big games, being absolutely hammered in European football. I do remember the incredible Milan team hammering Barcelona in a Champions League final. Like, is this is just following a trend. This is this is the point. Like in the last four months, Man City have been behind in games precisely three times. When they wanted, they turn it on. Like Kevin De Bruyne has been left out at the start of the year, starting 11s. Mm. And since uh, early spring, they've been untouchable. So much so that you'd credit Arsenal further with keeping in touch with them throughout the whole season. Because like, I thought the 2017-18 Man City side with uh, Leroy Sané, David Silva, Sergio Aguero, mm. I thought that was the best Premier League team I'd ever seen. And this one is probably not as entertaining on the eye sometimes, but it's far more ruthless and efficient. And at the same time, they still have an amazing ability to just destroy teams. Like the first 15 minutes, they had 79% possession. They had 13 shots by half time. This is the European champions they were against. Well, it was, it was like Courtois. If Courtois hadn't been in goals, yeah, and, 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 and then one of, the, one of the better goalkeeping performances we've seen this season from yeah. a keeper who's conceded four, that save from the second header from Erling Haaland. Uh, yeah. It's one of the best saves to see all season. After that save, I was, I was ready to like, start, oh, yeah. start texting my mates going, it's going to be one of those nights for City. And like, by the time I had like, sorted the phone out, the goal was in. I was like, oh, well, I was going to put that yeah. in. Well, Erling Haaland did score over the two legs. But should have scored a hat trick last night if it yeah. wasn't for Courtois. <laughs> and it, you know the, the save in the second half, even onto the crossbar from the one on one, and the, like the first one, like point blank. I know like Haaland headed it straight at him, mm. but like he still had to move his arm to save it. It wasn't luck; it didn't just hit him. Yeah, um, it was like it was like a motivated giant in an FA Cup third round against a minnow. That's how City treated Madrid. Mm. It did feel like that, didn't it? Like they were just walking around them. Um, I don't know why Carvajal brings back in Militao instead of playing Rudiger. Like we were talking about in the office yesterday, myself and Phil, we were like you have to play Rudiger, don't you? I thought Rudiger dealt with Haaland well in the first leg. Yeah, really well. But I, I mean, is that changing anything? It, like, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying. I, I, I'll, put it, I'll put it to you this way: no. Could Madrid have done anything differently last night to prevent what occurred? Turned up. Yeah, probably turned up. Vinicius goes over to Ancelotti at one point in the match, and you're he's like, yeah, yeah, what's going and on? at that point, so that, that's a two 0 right? Yeah, yeah. He, he hadn't touched the ball at that point. Yeah, had not touched the ball once. Had Benzema touched the ball? And then the, the next so. time he gets it, or the first time he gets it, takes on Kyle Walker, temporarily beats him for pace, mm-hmm. and then the recovery pace of Walker just thwarts the chance completely. Oh, yeah, and then seconds later, Benzema puts him in, or he puts in Benzema, and keeper just gets there and in front of him and then you have like in its own moment in the game living on an island is Tony Kroos's shot <laughs> oh yeah which is an absolute made for a Champions League advert for the next 10 years where the ball is still from 35 yards out as it, as it goes towards the crossbar barely moves beautiful mm. but outside of that like Modric and Kroos get taken off between the 60th and 70th minute the narrative would be is at the end of those well, two breaks is, and Benzema on the way out. It's clearly the end of the era. They've they've been uh, replacing them slowly over the last couple of seasons with uh, much younger players, and I don't think they expected them both to last as long as they did. And this is the one season that's one season too many for them. But next year they'll have a recast midfield, and it'll be one of the youngest Real Madrid teams that we've had in ages. And I think they'll be back next season. Like I absolutely do think they'll be back. If you add uh, Bellingham, and then it's Bellingham, Camavinga, and Mbappe. Uh, potentially yeah. I, I mean uh, you know um, uh, there's a, a couple of other midfielders Alfonso Davies has been linked as well well that, that's that's their shopping list um, mm. now whether or not they get all those we'll see but uh, so I don't think Real Madrid are going to go anywhere when it comes to big time knockout Champions League games and so therefore I don't think this is the end of football mm. were um, the celebrations over the top or am I just reading too much into it because it's their last 
game and they're heading off to Istanbul. I think you're just like, a Man United fan, Shane. No, no. I think but all like, of this is salty Manchester United. Holland had, no, had the Norwegian flag wrapped around him. Usually that, that you see that happen when there's a trophy on the pitch with you. Am I wrong? You're going full stormers on it. Well, like, you're, the, you're, the, Inter, Inter kind of did it the other night as well, but I didn't see any... Richard Keyes flags. here, is it? No. It's not the end of football at all. Like, it's really not. This is, this is the best football I've seen in my lifetime at the highest level of the game. Mm. And the difference between the quality in those two semi-finals, even did, though they were both comfortable victories for did, the victors. Did you watch much of Peps Barcelona when they had the greatest player of all time in the team? I'm saying there's more teams now that are better than then. But you said it's the greatest football you've ever seen. I think on a consistent basis at the top level, well, it's, it's, it's amazing. Last, last night my, was the point, best. my overall point is this reminds me of the, or last night reminded me of the 2009 Champions League final where Barcelona against Manchester United were the two best teams in Europe, but one was far better than the other. Yeah. And that's what happened last night. Yeah. So if City yeah. wants to, if I they have the motivation and I, focus, I don't think this they'll is, dominate I, Champions League. I actually don't think Real Madrid are the second best team in Europe at the moment. I'm not sure who is, but... but that's, well, that's, that's, the good, that's a good question. Um, I don't know, but like... That's the point. Their league form has not been great. And even like last season, it's hard to argue that they were the best team. Uh, anyway, but they end up winning because then you had to, to win in, in this um, competition. The money, the money is the thing that, that's coming up. Richard Dunn last night on telly was like, I mean, everybody's going to go on about the money, but actually all the other big teams, with the exception of Grealish, could have signed any of those Manchester City players. And he's getting hammered for it. He's absolutely getting hammered for it. Is he wrong, Shane? I think he, I think he is wrong. I, like, I was reading the Richard Dunn com- uh, comments. I, I only saw the quotes this morning. I haven't uh, seen a clip, but... I don't agree that... that will, I, will, I do, will I do some of the quick comments? Yeah, go on. If you look at the squad, Jack Grealish was maybe the only one that other teams couldn't compete with because he was 100 million and probably wasn't worth 100 million at the time. Man City turned him into a player now worth more. If you go through the rest of the squad, there's nobody that United, Chelsea or Liverpool couldn't afford. You could have added Arsenal into that, by the way. City have a plan with how they recruit people, how they do it, what type of people they want for each position over a period of a couple of years and accumulated that squad. Even with Calvin Phillips, it was done on purpose because they needed a certain amount of English players. He was an English player of a certain quality and not on 200 grand a week. They don't make many mistakes... They maybe get a couple wrong at the start, but over the last three or four years, every single player that's come in has been a success. Look at Alvarez. He came for £15 million, affordable for the whole Premier League and most of Europe. But City were the ones that went out and got him. Biggest draw to Man City is Pep Guardiola. All the players want to play from the way he's evolved the team, even though this season's been incredible. I think what's helped him has been the signing of Haaland. Haaland can play one position in one style, so it restricts how much he can change the attack. He's right that Guardiola coming in is the reason why why so many players want to join City. I agree with that. But I mean, City don't have owners like the Glazers who are out to pay themselves an annual dividend and are out to make profit and don't care about the football club. Like, okay, okay. The, the, the Abu Dhabi owners you, don't you, care about you, you money because they have so much of it. It's you, monopoly. You bring up the Glazers, right? Yeah. You bring up the Glazers and all they're interested in is taking money out of the club. Yeah, fact. It's not a fact. That is a fact. I mean, okay. All the, the Glazers don't care about money. Let, let, let's look at the net spend over the last five seasons. Yeah, okay. You what's, the net, what's the net spend for Manchester United over the last five seasons? Yeah, the, the, the more the Glazers pump into the club, I'm sure they, they feel like the more profit they're going to make and the more they're going to line their pockets. So, but hang on. Sorry, what? Well, the, the Glazers, what's the argument here? Well, the Glazers only care about lining their pockets. It's the, it's the Glazers' fault that Manchester United couldn't compete with Man City, right? Even though their net spend over the last five seasons is £611 million. Yeah. Manchester City's net spend over the last five seasons, this is according to Transfer Market... Is two hundred and sixty million. But, uh, they're not the same. No, of course they're not. But so the Glazers, by taking all this money out, have also put a lot of money in. But the Glazers, the, you're after saying now that the Glazers don't just care about money. I'm they, telling you, that, that is all they care about. I'm, but they six hundred and eleven million net spend. The money's been wasted. Is the problem? Oh, for sure. It's been not, not, so that's but that. It's the people spending the money is what's important. Not 
it's not even how much is spent. It's the people spending the money. And that, so Pep's not going to get any credit from most people for winning a Champions League this year because everybody's like, oh, they just it was the money. But like if you again, if you look at the next one, you can go back. You can go back even further. And obviously, but, Manchester City invested loads of money early on. But man, like the the biggest net spenders over the last five years is Chelsea, and then it's Man United, and then it's Arsenal, and then it's Liverpool, and then it's Man City. Yeah, so does Richard that, not have a point? No, that's net spend. But but also the, the Haaland the Haaland one, like he said, oh, City only spent fifty million on Haaland. They did spend a hundred million on agent fees. What well, did they? Ridiculous well, wages as well. Okay, but how are they ridiculous? Who's the most? No, who? sorry, they're not ridiculous in comparison to what they look. Like, he's probably earning what he what he should be in comparison yeah. to other footballers. Manchester, but it's still really high. Manchester United pay more to David de Gea than any other goalkeeper in the Premier League. Gets. Yeah, that that's also ridiculous. But that, so it, the the problem here is right that Man City. It's just Man City. It's just the money. But actually, Man United have spent more money than they have. Arsenal are spending similar money. Chelsea have spent more money. So it's not just the money. So Richard Dunn has a point. Uh, yeah, he does have a point. But like uh, money in football is like the internet. Like There's no going back. So you have to accept all that. And Pep Guardiola's got everything he's ever wanted at Manchester City to make this happen for him. And he has done that. But like you have to give him huge credit because when they got money exactly 15 years ago this summer... They were just a mid-table Premier League side, so they still had to build all this. The problem that people have, I think, is the source of the money and the nefarious acts behind them. It's not, it's not like a self-made million or billionaire coming in, like uh, Jack Walker. Walker style, to be like, hmm. here, I'm, yeah. I'm going to give back to my hometown club. Like, I've noticed even the Stan Kroenke stuff with Arsenal this season, it's like, the, the anger there has dissipated massively because Arsenal are becoming a success. Mm. I don't have any problem maximising the resources that they have. Happens to be that City pretty much have a limitless ones, but they still have to do the job. You can't put any old schmuck in there to no. do it. Like, Pep Guardiola is brilliant, and he has everything done to a T for him, and he gives them back as well his expertise and it's a brilliant project if you want to call that you world of football it's the only problem here it's just like um, Gavin Cooney was saying the other day on the show it's like this amnesia around the 115 charges it's, it's that stuff that annoys people That's the, the money aspect is you can talk about that's relevant in modern football I, the, 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 well, hang on the, but I, I think because, the, the, because the, everyone has money well has the argument level. about the money was the one that was thrown up to them and now the charges have existed it's like okay I, can, I have, a, I have uh, you know post-fact rationalisation I can make these charges. And look, the, the charges are really, really important, right? And I, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not saying that for everybody. Loads of people are obviously always talking about the money, and that's fair enough. But I do think that, like, the salty Man United fans, the salty Liverpool fans, the salty Chelsea fans, the salty Arsenal fans this morning, like, uh, what they did was they identified people who were going to spend the money wisely, and spending of the money wisely is the single most important thing. Right, but it's not, uh, so, it's not okay. salty to point out that City are the team with the 115 alleged financial irregularities. City are the team. They no, are. Not, not the other teams you mentioned. They are, they are. But... Um, but I find it amazing that the fans or anyone associated with all those clubs that you just mentioned would have a go at each other because they're all in the same bracket to me mm. and City just, oh yeah, they're all just do the best at what they have like, like it's that, we're way beyond that ever going backwards like, that's what football is now it's just it's a huge business with money pumped into it the love of it is pretty much gone but you have this incredible professionalisation of the game where the standard is at an all time high mm. that's the sacrifice that's what you have to accept that's what's going to happen it's a slight off point to what you guys are talking about, but still involves Manchester City. So, like, we talk about City as if it's just the men's team, but obviously there's the women's team, there's an amazing academy. Like, all the money also goes into those things. And the women's team has, like, competed very successfully for the last couple of years. I say very successfully. Like, they've always been Champions League, always in top three places, uh, have won a couple of titles. And again, they're not necessarily known as, like, the team that spends an outrageous amount of money, but, like, spends a lot of money well and brings in good players 
works well with the players they have, has a good bench, has that depth of a squad, which I think is the thing about City. It's like it's not necessarily even just the players that are on the pitch. Like they'll buy up the best players from around the league so that other teams can't get them. Like that Pep has admitted before that that's a transfer strategy for City. It's stuff like that that they're able to do that you look at say Arsenal this season, they can't do that sort of stuff. There is like a I suppose well, we, uh, it frustrates me slightly sometimes when we talk about like City and the ownership and we talk exclusively about one team and not necessarily the club and all the other aspects of the club. So like that money doesn't just go into the men's team. It also goes into the fact that like there's insane facilities for the women's team. The Academy Stadium is a really, really nice stadium. The younger teams play there. The women play there. There are so many facets to this and it goes beyond just the team that we saw beat Real Madrid last night, probably going to win a Champions League, possibly win a treble this season. Yeah, I, th- like, I think Manchester City owners have done a remarkable job at the club from top to bottom. Well, compare them with PSG. Yeah, They've, that's exactly how to do it and how not to do it. But it all comes back to the source. Like, you're never going to to like these people or be in favour of them like and I'm not saying you should be you should like them or be in favour of them I just think that uh, the notion that other teams couldn't have competed with them is is actually wrong the, the argument about the ownership uh, is is really important one to have and the conversation to have about the ownership and this being a plaything of a nation state is, is, is absolutely completely wrong and it's a disgusting way for football to have gone but the notion that other teams don't have similar amounts of money and couldn't have competed with them along the way that's just not holding yourself to account. That's just saying, well, uh, we had, a, you know, we, there's nothing we could do because that's a, we're up against the nation state. Well, actually, there's loads that has been done, could have been done, and other other teams have done, and, and everybody's managed to beat Manchester City up to this point. It's just frustrating because we could be sitting here talking about the unbelievable performance last night, and, and look, we will, we will and should, but also you can't get away from all of this, the, the money stuff. Like you're you're sitting last night, and the ironic thing last night is as that game is ongoing, Coventry City are beating Middlesbrough to qualify for a championship playoff final a Coventry City team that were in financial dire straits and have come back from the brink and just the irony between that match and, and the story behind that club and the work that Mark Robbins has done with Coventry and what's happening you know not far away in Manchester you're like this is it's remarkable yeah I think but I think like and so many people say that right and it's correct morally but you look at the first couple of years of the Premier League just watch it back like yeah, the standard. No, we're no, not even related to modern teams, and that's because the money wasn't there. Like, yeah, that's what you have to sacrifice. Like, so this idea, you know, it's very romantic. Coventry or Luton are going to be in the Premier League next season, and that is amazing. Like, mm. Luton Stadium isn't even up to standards playing the Premier League. Like, they'd have loads of work to do over the summer if they're the ones who win the playoff final. But they're going to get obliterated next season if they don't uh, invest in any way in that team. Like, there'll be no romanticism by October. Yeah, finished. Managers will be gone, and like, and but that's that's what you have to accept if you're going to make it elitist, which is what it is. And but you said like, oh, we should talk about the football last night, and we should, but there will always be an asterisk next. To yeah, this. but just like there's always going to be an asterisk if Manchester United won the league. Yeah, if, if Qatar, if the Qataris come into Old Trafford, and sorry, people comment that to that to me all the time. Oh, you won't be complaining if the Qataris come in and win trophy. I will be, and I guarantee you, if the Qataris come in, I will mention the asterisk for Manchester United if yeah, they win trophy. Yeah, but you still go to Old Trafford. Well Trafford. That like it won't stop you like going to matches, yeah. supporting the team, yeah, exactly. watching all the games, you'll Buying probably jerseys. buy jerseys in the same way. Like, yeah, contributing money to them. They'll still contribute money into the club. Being, being a fellow traveller. Like we had the, gla- the Glazers, remember the Glazers protest peaked in 2010? Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the yellow and green scarves, yeah. the original United colours. And Beckham put it on when he was in London at AC Milan after that game. Oh, this is brilliant. But sure, like the Glazers are just sitting back in America being like brilliant. Mm. More eyes on us. 
If you can sacrifice the dignity being hated, you'll achieve everything like <laughs> whoa, whoa! Where, where do we start and where do we end? Seven fifty this morning. OTBA I'm live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shaver, your money back. Neon Edition is available now. Here's what's coming up to me now and ten o'clock. Graham Hunter standing by. We'll get to him at eight o'clock. Eric Dillon is going to join us at twenty past eight to preview the Katie Taylor fight. Sports pages with Cameron at eight forty-five. Derek McNamara is going to preview the uh, Heineken Champions Cup final. Uh, Martin Hoare, marathon runner, at ten past nine, and we'll bring you some uh, Gavin Casey at half nine. Uh, Offaly beat Wexford last night to win the under-20 Leinster Championship uh, Offaly are on the comeback trail on both hurling and football uh, there's a press conference today Rafa Nadal pulling out of the French well, Open we, think. We, we don't know but as we were saying beforehand he's, I don't think he's going to be called at a press conference to say I am playing it'll be the first time he's ever not competed at the French Open since making his debut in 2005 we do, we do basically know all the players are reporting that he's out of the French mm. Open mm. where does that leave the other competitors in the field like as a delighted <laughs> Um, no, As in, who, who's most likely then to kind of take up Nadal's mantle for the French Open? Uh, it'll be himself, I'd say. It'll be Djokovic. Uh, um, Alcaraz? I'd say Djokovic would be Alcaraz if it came to us, yeah. Really, at the moment? Yeah. Alcaraz got beaten recently. He got beaten recently. He won another ATP 1000, and by his age, only Nadal had won as many. So, yeah, like, like Alcaraz is already a Grand Slam champion, won the US Open last year. But uh, still has to do with the French Open. Has a far better chance of Nadal not there. I would still say Jack, which is going to win this though. All right. Um, it's Sunday week that starts. The main draw, yeah. The qualifying starts Monday. All right. Is there any interest in the qualifiers? Is there? <laughs> Why are you no one pays any attention to the qualifiers for the for the. Okay, I like the World Snooker qualifiers. The tennis like, geeks do. The geeks do. No, yeah, if yeah. you if you Google French Open, it'll have the start date as Monday. And PM did a sat with Caitlin Thompson this week, and it was the French Open starts Monday, which is technically correct. But the main draw gets going Sunday week. Yeah, the, it gets the bit that you first round, like. the bit that we'll have grown up watching. The televised part, telly. Yes, yeah, exactly. The two weeks of the French Open starts. <laughs> correct. You know the bit yes. of Roland Garros that everybody pays attention to. Yeah, mm. I presume they don't use the main courts. No. So then, okay. no, 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 it's not even. It's not even Roland Garros. It's the tournament technically starts. Doesn't. If you were working, when at does the Wimbledon Open, start? If, if you were working at the French Open, you'd be working from Monday. With respect, then, the, then the British I Open. Love what the sentence starts with respect. It's never respectful. No, it's never respectful. <laughs> you can ignore everything before that. Mm. With respect. <laughs> no offense, uh, but yeah. Uh, then, then the British Open has basically started now because the qualifiers, like. I mean, okay. I know you're a contrarian. I didn't expect we've, you to we've, bring this up. Like, okay, we've I mean, a, like it, it, we've it wasted a lot of your time, starts. viewers. I'm just waiting for my opportunity. So he's left Shane speechless. <laughs> Cullum is now speechless, and I'm like, what am I going to be hit with that leaves yeah, me speechless? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm not, I know uh, you're a contrarian. But we should talk about so the World Cup warm up build up last night. Courtney Brosnan was on the bench for Everton. Um, should we be a bit worried about this? The, the, the last time we saw her when she was picking the ball of the net repeatedly. Yeah, I don't actually think that was really her fault either, though. That was just a bit of a capitulation by Everton. Um, I think she's been on and off the bench all season. It looked like she had kind of hammered down the number one position at the end of last season, but Emily Ramsey is there, who's a very good young English goalkeeper, and the general consensus seems to be that... Uh, Everton want to develop her and hopefully she could be a potential number one for England in the future so she's been given a lot of opportunities this season um, and that has affected Courtney Brosnan which is really unfortunate but I don't know Like she's one of the players that has never necessarily done badly by not playing so she would be one of the ones that I'd be less worried about the fact that she's not getting as much game time and the fact there's only like two games left of the season 
there's not much competition really for her place in, in terms of Vera Powell's thinking at this point. She's nailed on. Yeah, pretty much like, I mean, Grace Maloney at Reading is most likely going to be relegated. Um, and then Megan Walsh as well has had like a torrid time with Brighton, hasn't really been able to nail down that number one spot, even less so than Courtney Brosnan. So, okay. yeah, I think she's pretty set. Uh, in other better news, Katie McCabe did score for Arsenal, who are in good form at the moment. Yeah, uh, good form despite the fact that they have suffered another injury last night. It looked like possibly an ankle break to Leo Valti. It was just a really, really bad challenge, but it's just another one of their key players done. Uh, Kenny McCabe came out afterwards and spoke very strongly about the mentality of the team. And she's obviously been captain since Leah Williamson and Kim Little got injured. And she was asked, you know, how how have you guided this team through this incredibly tough period? And she was like, uh, I don't do anything. She was like, this, this is the team. I, I just go out and play as I think I should play and everyone else follows, which I thought was an incredibly Katie McCabe sort of answer to something. Um, but yeah, good goal from her. It was a bit of a, I don't know, I definitely think the keeper should have done a lot better with that one. Yeah. Um, she I was, think you should be being harsh on the oh keeper yeah, there. We had a debate about this pre-show. Well, because yeah. I, like, I watched it last night and then, Shane, you said that you thought the keeper did all right and I rewatched it again. But like, she was so far over in the goal. Maybe her position. She was so like, close to it. And I know it was in the corner, but like, she definitely could have got down a lot quicker and it was so far out and it wasn't exactly a very fast or powerful shot either. It was so far in the corner. Maybe, yeah, you could argue the positioning, the starting position wasn't good. But I think once the ball is hit, she's done all she can to move over as fast as, as possible and Kitty has hit it as as far into the corner as he possibly could. Maybe I'm just Kitty bias. Fantastic strike. No, oh, like, I'll no totally take it. If she wants that. to do a couple of those in the World Cup, then yeah, I'll course. be delighted. But, uh, yeah. No, and I I mean, the big games are this weekend. So you have the Manchester Derby and the London Derby. Um, Arsenal are three points behind Chelsea, but they have a significant goal difference advantage. So it'll be interesting to see what the results of that one is because Chelsea are kind of at the stage where they're getting a lot of their injured players back and Arsenal are just dropping like flies, essentially, at this stage. That uh, red card tackle was pretty poor. Aggie Beaver-Jones yeah. um, on Leowati. So, like, she... She immediately gets surrounded by Arsenal players who are kind of pushing her around a bit, going, what are you doing? Oh, like, Jen Beattie and Lotwin Moy looked like they were ready to fight her. Was she crying going off the pitch? Or she was definitely a bit uh, upset going off the pitch? No, she was really upset going off the pitch, and I feel bad for her. I think she's like 18, 19, and it was just, it was a stupid challenge. It was kind of lose the head moment, but there was no malice behind it. Mm. And she released a statement later on in the evening, like a big one apologising, and I was like, you don't have to do this. Like, how many people do a reckless challenge on the pitch? It's not that big a deal and Valti herself even released a statement being like please don't abuse her like mm. things happen it's a contact sport Alright we'll leave it there for now uh, OTVM live with Gillette Labs got the ultimate shave of your money back Neon Edition is available now I'm delighted to say Graham Hunter is with us to parse an absolutely dominant performance in Manchester City last night Graham, good morning to you how are you? Morning all good um, on Virgin TV last night they were like don't really at half time they were like I don't remember a Real Madrid uh, team being as coursed around a pitch as they were in that first half and then obviously the second half happened and it got even worse. Can you remember anything? I mean, you've obviously seen way more Real Madrid than any of us have. Have they ever had a similar humiliation? Well, obviously the, the first classical that Mourinho faced, um, which was, I guess, November 2010, 5-0 against an all-time great uh, team um, coached by Pep Guardiola. At that point, they tried to play toe-to-toe and were taken apart. Um, I suppose against Milan, back in the era of 
Hullet and, and Reichard and Mambaston, they did get absolutely smashed um, again. And, and that occasion where it was four or five, my memory fails me. And I didn't know it would be a general knowledge test. But if you look, if you reach for domestically, it would be that Bustler um, game that began the classical wars when you adopted a completely tactic, different tactic against Bustler from there on in. And it led to extraordinary behaviour and an extraordinary interest in the fixture. And, and the rise of the Rossoneri, um, and that's still under Saki, I believe. And, and, and those, would, those would count as two in, in the last, I don't know, was it from 30, 30 yeah. years? Those two would count as on a par with what happened last night. That's the level of historic significance that we're talking about from the performance. Well, um, yeah, probably. And just to, let's focus on Madrid for a few minutes because um, we, we've spoken a good bit about them over the last while and whenever we do, you list off the ages of the young players coming through and just how sensational the talents are. And it felt like they'd managed to bridge the gap between the old players who had carried them to all of their victories in the previous years and then injected the elixir of youth into the side. And last year, they won the Champions League with basically the same team. So, like, you can't say it didn't work. Um, maybe this is just the end of that team and the birth of the new team has already happened and it'll mutate into the... the it'll be the kids' team next season because... You know, I can't see them taking the field next year in a similar stage of the competition with the midfield of Cruz and Modric still key to trying to run the game. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, first of all, if, if I'm going to answer comprehensively anything that you've said there, the point has to be that um, any analysis has to take in the fact that City were extraordinary. And, and there wouldn't be many sides, I don't think, that would withstand City playing at that level. Madrid contributed because patently what we saw last night was irresistible force meets movable object. Madrid didn't compete with the same intensity. They were second to almost every 50-50 ball. They began to make more and more mistakes. But the picture of the match told you that Ancelotti had misunderstood the potential gap between the two sides and therefore probably if he had it again he would pick a different 11 Valverde instead of Rodrigo Camavinga in midfield Rudiger and Militao in the centre defence Alabat left back and then let's see whether the gap would have been narrower question secondly um, it's probably time to be careful about how we speak about, for example, Modric, you mentioned there. It'll be 38 and a handful of months, so your point is bound to be true that changes are coming. Still a guy who powered his country to third in the World Cup, aged 37, and who's been influential all season. And Madrid took an absolute smashing last night. Moreover, irrespective of where you work like me or who you support like millions of Madrid fans, there's there's nothing to do about last night other than to hand plaudits to City who played at an Excelsior level. It was a joy to watch. Anybody who enjoys sport, let alone soccer, would say that that was 90-something minutes of just the, the best attitude, movement, use of the ball, tactics, readiness for big moments that you can ever really expect to, to watch. But I, I, I still think that we've, you know, we look at 
at Real Madrid side who, when they won the European Cup and the Spanish title last season, they'd only done that once before, jointly, since 1958. So a dip this season was predictable, inevitable almost. They put all their eggs in one basket to retain the Champions League. They'd fallen behind a very, very average Barcelona side who won the title. So we knew that there were flaws already. We knew that the that transformation that you're talking about between the young team and the old team was imperfect. And Ancelotti will look at how he prepared for last night. He'll look at the conclusions he drew from last week and he'll realise that he's contributed to the errors. Prior to the match, there was a lot of briefings coming out to, you know, that two of the sports papers in, in Spain are very... Mm, they, they pledge allegiance to Florentino Perez and the briefings were coming out that Ancelotti irrespective of what happened, was completely safe. Already this morning, questions are being raised <laughs> to the contrary, which seems to me to be the howl of pain, the, the fact that nobody associated with that club, understandably, um, enjoys anything like humiliation, never mind simple defeat. So there, there, there are a lot of questions, but I won't be joining in a stampede to say, this team is finished or Cross's influence has gone forever. They were taking apart in the night. They've been looking tired for weeks. There's been a World Cup in the middle of the season. And they they are not as well planned in the evolution of the team as, for example, City have proven to be. Uh, I know we're not body language experts, Graham, but you look at different aspects of the last night when you know Ancelotti, every time the camera pulls to him, he's scratching his head. There's a moment in the first half where Vinicius is coming over to him, exasperated by the, I don't know, maybe by the tactics. Benzema, his body language as well. Modric probably had the, the poorest game we've seen of Modric in, in some time. Is there, are there any reasons for that? Like the, They just seemed disinterested, but as you say, maybe that's because of City. It's, it's the, the, They're interesting points. The, the first thing I'll say, Shane, is that that, that, that calm, not particularly involved Ancelotti is identical body language to when they won the Champions League last season. He was absolutely identical at 2-0 down at Anfield. You won't see him massively animated and you won't normally see him making huge tactical changes during a, a half. Alterations at halftime usually are about retouches, individual players being told to do something slightly different. You'll sometimes see a liberation of somebody who's supposed to be a third forward of Valverde being told um, you're an out and out forward or drop back, we're playing 4-4-2. Retouches are fine. He's tactically astute. In, in terms of body language, in terms of the fact that you, you saw him passive against the typhoon, that's the same man as we've been watching for seasons. Vinicius' frustration is easy to pinpoint. All the first leg, the supply to him was cut out. And therefore, he was arguing, this is happening again. We need to change. And it did happen again. If you excuse me, I'm going to cough right. <coughs> that wasn't me shouting um, at the football last night. Touch of the summer flu. And, and I think that um, when I talked about Ancelotti having to rethink now the way he approached that tie and learned from it, which and that's a word he used a lot last night. He didn't speak much. He said, we have to learn from this and improve, but just get better, learn from this. And I think that when um, you looked 
I found it revelatory last week sitting listening to Pep Guardiola. I've rarely heard him say this. He went, I have understood, I've got a little idea, and he came back to it again and again, not just when questioned. I've got a little idea about how to open Real it up. I know what I'm going to try to do next week. For him to say that, I've left him open to being unpicked, to, to understood, to say it immediately after the match, in all my experience of listening to Pep Guardiola, which dates back to, as a coach, 2008, it was really unusual. One of the things he did, because what they patently also did was up their intensity, they upped their press, they were far better at that this week than last week. But the overload done the right, because while Kamavinga didn't play exceptionally well as a left back, massive amount of the time it was about the other players around him didn't react to the overload and they consistently got different players overloading him, probably usually based around Silva. And that, that worked to treat. And, and I think that when there's a really big um, x-ray of what happened last night, the strategy and tactics as well as um, Madrid's athletic ability and intensity will come under under focus. So um, th- there's no escaping the fact that the, the gulf was bigger than the final result, much bigger, based on play, based on readiness, based on athleticism. For example... If you look at last week's game where on a number of occasions, Bernardo, and he said this after the match too, didn't go into details, Bernardo Silva looked athletically in the way that you're describing Modric and Cross at the moment because of circumstances. In the goal, Bernardo Silva wasn't simply outstripped for pace by Vinicius in the first leg. He wasn't ready, he wasn't on his toes. And there were a number of times when players from Real Madrid streamed past him. He changed his attitude, changed his behaviour, changed his pitch position last night. It was after or around the man of the match. So um, I think the side which was better resourced, better prepared, and did a better job between matches um, won last night. And I think that for that reason, there'll be a critical gaze turned upon Ancelotti because he hasn't handled this, this, these eight days particularly well. For my taste, outfit it doesn't mean the end of him at Real Madrid. It could do. He may choose to go to the Brazil national team. I miss him very much indeed. He's incredibly interesting. He's often very witty and funny. He's a calm, interesting, articulate voice in in the in the maelstrom of madness that goes around goes on week after week in all European elite football. So if this means the end for him, it'll be it'll leave a better taste for those who admire him and like him. And it's it's also ironic. You both know Pep Guardiola suffered what he calls, I can't use the exact, the, the closest, the, the, I filled my trousers worst in my life in the 2014 semi-final um, where his Bayern side um, got thrashed 4-0 by Real Madrid in Bavaria. And I've been gentle about the phrase that he used. That was the worst night of his coaching career. Here he is. Different two teams, okay, or he's in a different circumstance. 4 0 in the semi finals, however many years later we are from 2014. And he's turned the tables on Ancelotti. Great sides sometimes, or great clubs sometimes get a slap in the face, get a pie in the face, and then they move on. I think Madrid in general will cope with this well and rebuild and be ugly and nasty and frightening to all their opponents next season. Yeah. 
And you can see them spending heavily in the in the summer, and we've already heard about yeah. the the Bellingham likelihood. Does something like this make a, a, a knee jerk? Um, and it wouldn't be knee jerk really because they've been um, courting Mbappe for so long. But does it make it slightly more likely that they try and break the bank to get somebody like that in? It's such a confusing subject, Jared, because and there's no no way I'm going to try and say um, here's the inside track, or I'll take you as far inside as I know. One. They are insanely desperate to sign Haaland. They still think that they can. They still, they're still briefing Madrid's two papers that Haaland will stay one more season in the city and come to Madrid. Personally, I doubt that. It's feasible. Madrid are an incredible draw. And if you're going to wait for Haaland, do you bridge the gap in the meantime or do you go all out for Mbappe? On the Mbappe subject... It's clear that things are changing at Paris Saint-Germain. He perpetually is in the huff with them or them with him. Messi's leaving. Um, Verratti's leaving, not, not before time. What I'm completely unclear about is whether Florentino Perez, not Real Madrid, but the president, the all-powerful president there, has forgiven Mbappe for now turning Real Madrid down three times. That's the type of behaviour that a man like him has never had to tolerate before, ever. And if he swallows humble pie and goes back after Mbappe, it will be only when Mbappe has promised on his honour that if he doesn't sign for Real Madrid this time, he'll donate three fingers. There will be absolutely nothing short of that. So whether it happens or not, it's patently clear that um, Benzema's had a much more difficult season. He's three years younger than um, Modric. Um, Before the last two weeks, he was averaging a goal or an assist every 93 minutes. But he's played fewer times, therefore he's scored fewer times. I think that um, last season, Benzema and Vinicius contributed between them 100 goals and assists. This season, it's 79 goals and assists. So they're a chunk off, but it's still pretty extraordinary. Yeah, Jer, you're right. They will go after um, a massively important striker at some stage. But whether it's Mbappé or Holland and whether they achieve that this summer, frankly, I don't know. And I'm also a little bit doubtful. But let, let's move on to City and Pep. Um, we've been talking this morning about how the, the charges that are hanging over the club is kind of a, a mood music around the back of this. And it's, it's, it is something we should constantly talk about because it will ultimately, I think, colour how this team gets remembered. And so it's important to, to foreground that as, as part of the conversation. And, and at the same time, you kind of need to have a split personality where you remember that. But do, like I... I I find myself really enjoying Bernardo Silva and loving the fact that uh, Jack Grealish, Aston Villa Jack Grealish, is running games at, at European Champions League semi-final level and still with the joyous abandon that he had as a championship footballer four or five seasons ago. Um, like, uh, Explain to me why I feel this, this uh, split, Graham. Um, because you're intelligent and experienced, I suppose. It's 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 really testing. Um, I find it um, shrill the way that a certain group in the UK media 
Hammer City all the time because all of us were taught innocent until proven guilty in life, not just in football. That leaves those who are not stamping on the ground all the time right now, maybe feeling a little bit red-faced if some of the, what is it, 114 charges, is that right? The charges relate back to um, the beginning of this era. They they concentrate very heavily on the Roberto Mancini era. At the moment, for the last two seasons, the charges are largely about City failing to comply, failing to help. If some or all of them are subsequently proven to be true, then it's it's pretty clear cut. We have to try to dissect more um, clinically our appreciation for what we've been watching and our disappointment and disgust at, at rules that have been broken. Those are there for a reason. Rules in this instance are principally there to stop the abuse of, of mega budgets, I think, and to try in some small way to even the playing field. I've got no embarrassment about saying that um, the brand of football I'm watching from Manchester City enthralls me. It's joyful. And it doesn't look or feel like a cheats project. The rules and the judgments, if um, if the process is carried out scrupulously, might say eventually, these were cheats. It doesn't look or feel like it. Doesn't, that expression that they use in American law, that emanates from law, if it, you know, if it looks like a something and it smells like a something and it walks like a something, it is a something. I, I, I'm enjoying this in the meantime, principally because, one, I know Begiristein well. I've known him for years. He almost never gets mentioned. He scouted and built a treble-winning side at Football Club Barcelona. The treble is a is a rare beast. Um, I think I think only seven clubs have won it. Only two clubs have done it twice. Guardiola is on the point of and and now looks a reasonable favourite to be the only coach in history to win the treble twice. There's evidence there that um, that he's the continuous factor. And if rules have been broken and money has been misused, that will taint their achievements. There's, there's, a, there's no question about that whatsoever. If they're proven innocent, if there's no verdict, then life is so tempestuous and testing for all of us that at that stage, I think you move on and you grumble and there's an asterisk maybe. But, you, but enjoy what's in front of you for the moment and and respect what's going on too because in my opinion Begiristein and his team no um, putting together of a mega project like that pertains to one man or woman Marina at Chelsea it, it doesn't matter and United's treble was largely one without a director of football but Begiristein and, and um, Guardiola bridge those eras the extraordinary treble they won in 2009 which again was joyous to watch it was a remarkably constructed. Part of it owed to a time before Pep Guardiola because the, the, the kernel of the site was put together before he arrived. But they're the two bridging men, in my opinion. And I think that, that what unites them is that it, it's, for my taste, I don't think we're watching a side which smells of money, which makes them a steamroller that nobody can get out of the way of. They've had to go to their ultimate to beat Arsenal in this title chase. And several weeks ago, although I said I thought that Arsenal would fumble and that City would overtake them, it was a it was an estimate, not knowledge. 
the majority of people, I think, thought Arsenal would see it through. City have had to go to the extremes. They haven't beaten Manchester United in the FA Cup yet. That will be um, that will be a WWF experience. That will be raw, I think. And genuinely, charges aside, because we don't know, and it's innocent until proven guilty for my taste, we're, we're being offered something which is aesthetically beautiful to watch. And again, which is not contrary to what you said, one of the things that Pep Guardiola does is he makes footballers better. It's not just the tactics. It's not just um, his accumulated knowledge in the way that he can unpick other sides. He makes his own footballers consistently. Who would have who would have believed that Mares would still be there? Who would have believed that Stones could make this transformation into the, the type of footballer he is now, where he plays now? Who would have believed that Kyle Walker would have been could have been shepherded away from the more robust side of life? that he likes and would have kept his physical conditioning such that natural speed is one thing that people talk about Walker all the time. He's given how occasionally he lives and wants to live. The nick he's in, you know, because it took 30 minutes last night for Rimmerdin to put five or six creative passes together consecutively. Instantly they did. Vinicius was sent through in his own. And, and Shane, your point about the pass of Ancelotti and my point about how he was at Anfield, if it's not Kyle Walker in peak form, not fast Kyle Walker, but in peak shape, he doesn't catch him and probably Vinicius scores or sets up a goal and the tie's different again. So for my taste, you said, why do I feel like this chair? It's because we're looking at something extraordinary and it's only once we hear the judgments that we can understand whether we should um, have a bit of taste in our mouth or just continue appreciating something that's off the scale good. One thing that struck me watching the game was just how good uh, and how settled the side is at the moment. It's clear he's got a first team in a way that wasn't really that clear. If we look back to previous European Cups where they went out, there was always a, a slightly random decision that was made and you're like, OK, I haven't really seen a lot of this before. So that would suggest that in, in his own mind he hasn't got that settled a team. The team looks very settled at the moment. You kinda, it picks itself in, in many respects. Um, there's talk that Gundogan might be at Barcelona next year. There's talk that loads of other clubs are, are interested in him. Is is it your experience that Pep, if they win this treble, that everything just rolls forward again? That they obviously strengthen, but like that that kind of he goes into whoever the person saying no, we're not giving Gundogan a multi-year contract and says we just won the treble. We're doing what we want because I want to keep this team together. I think it's part of his magic that um, I mean he often tells the truth in public which managers are not contracted to do. And when he says, I don't want players who don't want to be here, he means it. And and it's not that Gundogan is saying, I want out. He does want a bigger length of contract than City are offering him. But he's pretty obsessed, he's too strong. He's very, very keen on the idea of coming to Barcelona. The negotiations are very advanced. It looked like the two people that Gundogan was negotiating with Mateo Aleman and Jordi Kreff would both leave and suddenly that would leave the deal at least a little bit affected. Mateo Aleman looks like he's staying now. I think that the the, the, the chances favour Gundogan not renewing and going to Barcelona. Um, Barcelona have their own financial problems to deal with. To make sure that happens, I think it's a very strong likelihood that Gundogan says goodbye to Manchester City, playing the best football of his life at 31 uh, with the treble. They're, they're two principal targets, not their only targets, but the two absolute principal targets uh, were Guardiola and Bellingham. When I say were, still are. 
There's no deal for Bellingham to join Real Madrid. It appears like the player is favours Madrid. But Guardiola and um, Bellingham were their two principal objectives. Other players who, who demonstrate that they don't want to be at City, Pep will push them out and say thank you, goodbye. So change, I think, is likely. Wholesale change, I think, is unlikely. I think the majority of his squad are well rewarded. The contract situations are well handled. And while Bernardo Silva definitely has had a hankering to move, and if Bernardo Silva had his choice about move, he too would move to Football Club Barcelona. Laporte will leave. Laporte has been um, given the, the, in football terms, the cold shoulder by Pep Guardiola, who I think worries about his, his, if I use the phrase football intelligence, then maybe I'm being a bit harsh. But I don't see a future for Laporte at Manchester City. Certainly not an easy one. So I think he too will leave. They'll be turning over. Wholesale change? Definitely not. The majority of the squad not only want to stay, but are ripe for staying. There are very few are reaching an age where they can't play Pep's football. So I think minor changes. I think if they can, they will sign Guardiola. And I think that would be an exceptionally interesting purchase. Because he'll be 21 by the time he gets there. Nice. And Pep, uh, with all these players, will make him better, Jeff. Graham, we'll leave it there. Great stuff. Thanks a million. It's uh, Graham Hunter's thoughts on the game last night and the uh, wider European situation. It's 22 minutes past 8. OTB AM Live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. During the ad break, you're going to hear a clip from this week's episode of the Koi Gig Podcast with Emma Byrne, Karen Duggan and Kathleen McNamee talking about Chelsea now well on course for the double. The Koi Gig Pod on Off The Ball is in association with Cabri FC, official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. After the break, Eric Donovan talking Katie Taylor. OTB AM The Sports Breakfast Show from Off The Ball so Chantel Cameron fights against Katie Taylor on Saturday evening in the Three Arena. It's uh, the return of big-time boxing to Dublin after a long, long time. I'm delighted to say Eric Donovan is with us in the studio to talk to us about this. Um, we had Dennis Hogan in yesterday, and he was saying he was at the point when Bernard Dunn was fighting. Um, it's, you know, we, we all know the reasons why there haven't been big-time fights, but it's really important that this is here, that it is happening there's very few people in Irish life who could like set out the three arena the way Katie has and uh, so there's a lot riding on this yeah there's a lot I suppose but um, you know the positive news is that boxing is back in Dublin you know uh, we, we, I was at the Bernard Dunn night as well brilliant uh, classic night never you know legendary um, I think Katie Taylor boxed on the undercard she actually. was the first fight up yeah yeah as an amateur so um, that's brilliant and just to see the the crowd that came out to see her yesterday at the open workout as well. Uh, lovely weather as well, thank God. Definitely uh, helps, yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, but she creates some buzz, you know. You could just hear, like, she's... I think uh, Ariel Halwani, he's the uh, MMA kind of uh, broadcaster uh, type guy. And he was just talking about it's like... Uh, a roar similar to Justin Bieber like you know with the kids like you know so it's brilliant but that's the kind of um, I suppose admiration that she has across this country yeah um, what do you hope that it means in terms of future fights and like just getting the sport back to a situation where there are semi-regular big time fights in Dublin they obviously don't all have to be at three arena you know the National Stadium is a brilliant venue there's other places that they could have mm. shows and, and what does it mean for professionals in Ireland who are thinking actually you know I can make a career out of this 
Yeah, well, I think it's a good opportunity for the guys on the undercard as well. They're linking up now with big uh, UK promoters like Eddie Hearn has signed Gary Cully. He's also, I think he's done a deal with Dennis Hogan. He has Cuevan Agarco from Belfast. He, Tommy Thomas Carty is with Dylan White's promotions, you know. So there's more and more Irish guys signing to these uh, big UK promotions, which is positive in, in the sense of getting big fights over here in Ireland. You need that kind of backing. And like Eddie Hearn, you know, love him or hate him, he puts on the big fights. He's he's one of the best in the business and I know he gets a lot of stick as well, but he's doing some serious business in the sport of boxing and and uh, you know, thankfully he's managed to get Katie over here into the tree arena. Before we get into the, the nuances of this fight in particular, it is it is a bit mad that we haven't had more professional success given how successful our our amateurs have been. And I know and I understand that they're completely different sports really. But you would have thought with the, the numbers coming through the high quality coaching that they're getting at underage level that we would have had more professionals who reached the top level over the last fifteen years or so. Yeah, it's a very hard sport, Jerry. You know, it's uh, it's kind of sport forward slash business. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's very difficult to uh, you know to to be a world champion in in that sport. Um, you need a lot of things to align for you, a lot of things to go right for you, but you definitely need good backing, good promoters, good managers, and at the moment. Well, over the last number of years, you know, a lot of Irish fighters would have had to go to America, you know, and then it was very hard for them over there to make, like even Andy Lee as well had to go to America, do done his trade over there. Um, I know he came back and linked up with Adam Booth, but, uh, you know, he still won his world title over in America, you know, yeah. and that's where a lot of Irish had to go. Bernard Dunn done his trade in America, came back, but it seems now that they can, they don't have to go over there you know that they can have these big fights back home there's plenty of good coaches in around the UK and Ireland uh, and there's also a lot of strength and depth now in Ireland you know you've, you can, there's a couple of gyms around Ireland now where you can go and get really good quality sparring professional sparring but in the past you would have had to leave the country for that type of sparring but now we got that that pool so to speak yeah. uh, strength and depth and I think that can only and it kind of the the amateur game almost shot itself in the foot with this, you know, because of the whole kind of controversy around the Olympics and and the kind of corruption and that, you know, more and more fighters are leaving the amateur game at an earlier stage. And the professional game, as tough as it is, it can be a very lucrative business. And that's the appealing that's the you know the appealing uh, yeah. catch for people. I think I remember you saying before, Eric, you felt that Katie should or could have walked away after beating Serrano. Mm. And, and like, how do you feel about it now heading into this one? Because as, as we were saying during the ad break, there it is dangerous. It is dangerous, but like I kind of feel like you know who might to say like you know what I mean? Like like boxing is Katie Taylor's life, you know, and she lives and breathes for the game. Like and that's it. And she is happiest. I like she's so happy. She. Loves raising the bar, loves taking on the big fights. I'm just full of admiration for her. But like, my, for me, it was always about like, okay, go out on top. You don't, need, we don't. I don't think anybody deserves to take you off this pedestal, like you know. Uh, and that's because I just have a really close friendship with her, and uh, I love what she's done. But I think everybody has their time. You know what I mean? Uh, but look, I think her time is coming. You know. But I don't like if Crow Park is a possibility. I think that would be an incredible. It's, it's arena to ba- you know to mm-hmm. to go out in. It's back in the ether. It's it's back being spoken about kind of in in hushed tones yeah. around the fight that there's a possibility of a September fight and obviously that would have to be Serrano really. Um, mm-hmm. uh, now look, you you say it's a business and you point that out. Like you have to be you have to be planning. You have to make a plan for what's coming next. Mm-hmm. Um, does she have to win this fight to have the Serrano fight? It feels like she does, right? Ah, she does. Yeah, she Do does. You know? 
you know, that's the thing with, with you know, with, with with the boxing, it's kind of like winner stays on. You know what I mean? And uh, to be honest with you, I think Katie would do serious numbers. Like even if she didn't win, like you know, her legacy is cemented. But I just mean like it. It does kind of keep the train rolling and in a very good positive way. Um, and uh, but make no mistake about it, this fight is a big fight. It's a dangerous fight because she is uh, at a disadvantage in a lot of ways, um, but then at uh, an advantage in other ways. So you've got Chantal Cameron is the heavier opponent, you know, five pounds heavier. Um, she'll be coming down from a very a, a much heavier weight than that as well. She's a three-inch reach. She's a three-inch height advantage. She has youth on her side. Can you talk to us about the weight, right? Mm. Um, is it is there a potential that that's a double-edged sword where you know you you the bigger person should have more power and should yeah. be stronger and should get all the benefits of that, but actually coming down the weight is not easy, as we know. Mm. It's not easy to cut weight, you know, um, because cutting weight, you know, it takes a lot away from you. It can affect your strength. It can affect your mental preparations and it just can affect your overall game plan but I don't think she is um, like she's big she's big for the weight but I don't think she has serious problems making the weight so which means she will be very strong because I watched her fight against uh, Jessica McCaskill because that's the kind of they both boxed a couple of similar opponents mm. um, and you can't really gather a whole lot from the like the both boxed Sanchez the both boxed uh, uh Bust us, uh, but they both gave them two opponents shutout wins, like you know, so they were like ad- unanimous across the board. But the kind of the most recent one for Shante Cameron was Jessica McCaskill for the undisputed title, and I thought it was a close enough fight, but she beat McCaskill. Katie Taylor beat McCaskill five years ago when McCaskill was in a better kind of form, better, you know, mm. McCaskill's 38 now. Katie boxed her when she was 32, 33, when she was. Um, I think far better than than she is now and Katie kind of beat her well came through had to weather a couple of storms in that fight but beat her well over overall and I think uh, Chantal Cameron only boxed her last year beat her but it was a much closer fight um, so she has a lot going for her in terms of weight height youth and all that but in terms of boxing skill when you break it down to the boxing skill to the little nuances in the in in the ring in the in in the rounds I think Katie is is far superior Okay we'll get into what that actually means and how that's going to sh- show up in the fight in a moment but I want to play everybody this this is uh, Chantal Cameron uh, speaking yesterday to her own Ashley O'Reilly have a look When you're fighting Katie Taylor have you had to adjust your training? Just going through the gears I've uh, had tough sparring high work weight on the pads whereas usually I can uh, like chill, chill a bit on the pads but we've got a game plan and it's meant that I've had to go through gears and up my fitness so uh, training's been intense but I love it so it's been good and fighting Katie Taylor she's had to jump up in weight class in order to have this fight do you think that was a risk for her? I think yeah I think I'm quite shocked they didn't bring me down to 135 or sorry met her, uh, 137 pounds but um, yeah she jumped up to 140 and all respect to her because she could have had the easier option but she she challenged a bigger stronger girl so uh, all respect but it's kind of a mistake as well and for you personally to be able to fight someone like Katie is this a big moment for you? yeah huge I am um, any, everyone and anyone around this weight cap want, want to fight Katie Taylor because she's the queen of boxing in everyone's eyes really so um, 
Yeah, like, to get the opportunity, I'm, I'm over the moon. But And also, I'm going to hit coming here to ruin the homecoming, so it's a bit of both because I'm here to win. I'm not here just to take part. Yeah. Um, it's a, it is an interesting point about the weight. Um, I guess uh, we should give Katie Taylor all the credit in the world for that. Mm. Like, she wanted to make the fight happen. Um, the the Serrano fight wasn't going to happen. She could easily have just fought anybody because basically, if Katie Taylor was having the same build up to this fight this week, Ireland would be delighted for her and would be showing up to support her. But she's putting a record on the line against a bigger fighter who's undefeated, who has a seventeen and zero pro record. Like, it's really risky. It is, and you know, <laughs> Katie called for this fight. You know, Katie called for it. If Katie didn't want this fight, this fight would not happen. And that's why I have so much admiration for her. And she went against her character in terms to get this fight. She put up a post mm. on Twitter, like a so Not like her at all. so unlike Katie Taylor. You know, you're undisputed. I'm undisputed. Let's get it on. You know, um, it's funny. I was listening to an interview with Chantel, and she she wasn't even she didn't even see that tweet. Her phone just started hopping. She would right. come home from a training session. Her phone started hopping. People sending her the post, and. Um, and of course she's going to oblige but she, she actually boxed Katie back in the amateurs you know that's a long time ago like 2011 12 years ago Katie beat her but I think she was a bit starstruck getting mm. into the ring um, she, like because uh, Savannah Marshall and Nicola Adams were on the team as well and they were kind of spooking her out kind of you know she's like a god in, in women's boxing and she kind of was you know at the time and still is but uh, I think she was just um you know, she just was kind of she enjoyed the experience of boxing Katie. Yeah. But Katie beat her well, but look, it's twelve years on, so it's the perfect scenario for her in terms yeah. of like now you're now you're developed and now you're seasoned. Now you've all the belts. Go and do something about it. You know, we, um, we did a piece with James Tracy yesterday talking about the value of being at home for Leinster in the Champions Cup final at the weekend, and he was just talking about the crowd actually having an impact. Mm. I hadn't really heard anybody confess to this before like when things are going badly for you there's a kind of a brain fog mm. that comes down yeah. that comes washing down off the terraces but when things are going well for you you yeah. feel like you have this surge of adrenaline from it mm-hmm. um, could that be important like if, if she was a little bit freaked out 12 years ago is it possible that the crowd can somehow get in her head a little bit yeah it's a good question because like even from the interviews I've been watching and listening to I'm not convinced by Chantal Cameron I'm not mm. I'm, I just I don't believe her. I'm not saying she's a liar, but like, it's like, I don't feel the conviction is there. It's and a fake it till you make it. Well, yeah, well all the, the fighters do it. Yeah, well, you have to. It's a your poker face, like, you know, but uh, I just think walking out there into the tree arena on Saturday night, she's going to hear something, mm. feel something that she's never, ever experienced. And like the noise decibel you can imagine from the Olympic Games that time I think the tree arena the roof is going to be taken off it as well like uh, and I think that will definitely catch her in her you know stop her in her tracks to just whoa she already knows she's up against the kind of let's say the queen of boxing or the pound for pound the greatest female boxer in the world Um, she already knows all of that she knows how big this whole fight is and in like as a fighter, you're still training, you're still believing in yourself, you're still thinking, I can do this, I can do this, but I just think it's going to be something she's never, ever experienced, um, and I think that could catch her. There's, sorry, there's an amazing post-fight uh, mm. interview with Bernard Dunn on that night in 2009, mm. and I, I'm going to butcher this, but it's basically, what a day, 
the Manx got beat Ireland won the Grand Slam and now we're world champion yeah. and like you know it's all aligning for a similar day on yeah. Saturday I mean maybe not yeah. the, I don't know uh, but yeah. like you know the rugby's on mm-hmm. going to be a full house there mm-hmm. and then everybody rolls on to the evening and um uh, so I do think the crowd will be a fever pitch and I do think it can have more of a, I mean look <laughs> yeah. she doesn't need the crowd hopefully but no um, but there, no, she w- to be honest point, she, will, really. she will have the crowd and the crowd I remember look my last fight I weathered a couple of really rough rough storms in that fight but the crowd really got me going and like I would have heard f- over you know throughout my career that you know in the big professional fights, the classics, that you know, the energy of the crowd. Can, I never really got the chance to experience something like that. The Irish title fight against McAfee, I kind of did. It was, the stadium was kind of half full. It was good. It was a good buzz. But I never really felt in that in that fight that I was under the <coughs> excuse me under the cosh. But in the round ten of my last fight, I was. I was literally moments away from being literally stopped or out on my feet. But the crowd, it just kept me going, and. They call it the twelfth man or whatever. Like you know, it's it really is something special, and I can imagine for Katie Taylor's fight that that's on a whole new level, you know, because people are just literally almost in the ring with her, and I think that's going to be very daunting for Chantal. Um, Chantal has a, like I said, a lot of advantages. She, she look, she's not. She she she's a very economical boxer. She wastes nothing. She gives you know. She's very. Um, she does the simple things very, very well. Good jab, good, strong, high defence, and can be hard to break down. But because it's only two-minute rounds, I think that will stand to Katie. That Katie can, um, you know, be in and out, in and out, showing her feints, landing her combinations and moving. But she's going to have to be very disciplined because one of Katie's mm. flaws is, and we know this, is that she likes... A fight far too often for my liking or I suppose her coach's liking. You know, she just gets, she likes to square up sometimes and really go. And I wouldn't, like in this case, that would be a, you know, kind of a red flag. Stay away because you don't want to play into the hands of, of, of Cameron, the heavier fighter. Uh, technically speaking, does Chantal Cameron match up to anything that Katie has experienced before in her professional career or recently like is she a similar type boxer is this something that she's maybe not going to be used to or how does she compare well Katie's already boxed somebody who's an undisputed champion albeit in a different way than Mando Serrano and we know like that was women's fight of the year across male or female it was just an absolute classic and I'm still going that my poor wife got COVID in the week of the fight we were supposed to be there um, but look it's going to be a constant not that you bring it up often yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it's a consolation <laughs> for us to, to, to for Saturday night, so we cannot wait for it. But uh, yeah, I think she's been in with Katie's been in with better opposition, much better opposition. Um, I think uh, Cameron was twenty years old when she joined boxing, and she made the switch over from kickboxing. You know, so Katie's been immersed in this sport for, as a, since a ten-year-old girl, nine, nine or ten years of age. She's been around the high performance unit for years. She's very well schooled. She's got great pedigree behind her. You know, I know she's getting on and everything like that as well, but I think she's, I just think she'll have um, a little bit too much for Cameron on the night. There is talk that she might engage in 
the all out war at some point then <laughs> well if it's Katie Taylor that steps into the ring you can be damn sure she's going to do that um, she says it herself afterwards I don't know you know I, I, I just love a tear up every now and then you know and maybe like rounds 9 and 10 when she's up 8 eight nil on the scorecard yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Go on, yeah just, just yeah. don't get caught yeah you don't mind it at, you don't mind it at that stage but uh, you're going gonna to have to be very disciplined here in this fight because like as I said Cameron has a very good defence very very she's got a tall kind of height advantage what do you do when you're fighting someone who's taller than you well you got to the fainting has got to be really key because um, when a person is much taller than you they're going to want to be out on the outside keeping you at long range but Katie's going to have to try and get inside with fast attacks but you can't just go in recklessly carelessly because you can walk into heavy punches so she's got to get back to what she used to do really in the amateur days that fainting you know that she was brilliant at that Mm -hmm. so the fainting is kind of just setting those traps almost um, you know trying to uh, trick your opponent into thinking you're going to offload uh, you're going to let your punches go takes a high energy high volume you know to do this Um, but when she does it as soon as Cameron offloads Kitty will counter punch so kind of a slip a dummy it's like a dummy you know what I mean and a, and a counter punch afterward again takes a lot of effort a lot of energy um, but rounds can be won in snippets they don't have to be it doesn't have to be two minutes of non-stop mm. action you know you've got to be clever it's got to be in, in, in stages throughout the round get the quality work done and then stay out danger when you have your work done and move get on your feet she has brilliant footwork yeah. and I think she's much better footwork than Cameron and I think if she can get a lead on Cameron win the earlier rounds then she's going to bring Cameron out, you know, out of her uh, I suppose comfort zone because you're going to have to come forward so start fast and, and try and yeah build up a few rounds because once you get 3-4 rounds in the bank and you're winning then Cameron, you want Cameron going back to her corner and you want Jamie Moore and them saying listen you're going to have to go for it yeah. got, and then kind of when you're hearing that word in the corner you're not relaxed anymore you're not comfortable it's not flowing you're knowing that you're going to have to go out and out and do something outside of your game plan or your tactics mm. and that's what you want you want it because then you start making mistakes because mm-hmm. you're rushing you're chasing the fight we have some Katie here we can have, have listened to her again talking with Ashley yesterday um, when, I, when this fight was actually made when I knew that, that, that the whole cup fight was actually going to happen I was reminded back the first time I actually said put on a pair of gloves as a 9 or 10 year old just all the sacrifices year in year out that, that I made um, all the obstacles that were in my way from, from a, a young age now here we are um, women's boxing again is, is headlining a huge show and we're going to be uh, the centre of attention in the whole boxing world again and um, I'm just so grateful for this for this journey it's been amazing and the likes of you have paved the way but also the likes of Deirdre Fogarty yeah. you know that, that really yeah. kicked it off and I know she was a big hero of yours absolutely and it's amazing that Deirdre is actually going to be there on Saturday night to support me um, that's uh, that's so so special for me and she was the only female fighter I actually knew of at the time when I, when I was growing up and she was always so encouraging towards me always um, always made so much time for me every time she was home she held the pass for, for me a couple of times she invited me over to her house a couple of times it's just amazing the support that I actually got from her and um, she's actually going to be there on Saturday night to experience uh, this, uh, this, this amazing fight as well and I'm just so grateful Am I right in saying that the statue's been unveiled on Friday? Is that is it? Uh, or oh no, the statue has not been unveiled. Uh, there's going to be an evening with Deirdre Gogarty. Right. It's like uh, a bit of a storytelling, um, and it's going to be a fundraiser right. for the 
for the statue. Oh. Uh, so I'm going to be at that that event as well. Um, looking forward to it because I can imagine some incredible stories. She's clearly massive influence. She's going to be in studio tomorrow, dear Dr. Gogarty, as well, which I'm looking forward to as well. But clearly a massive influence yeah, on Kenny's yeah, career. Yeah, and you know, fair play credit to the uh, Kieran McIver and uh, the, all the committee that have got behind it because you often wonder if there was no dear to Gogarty would we have a Katie Taylor, you know? Yeah, you know so. She had to leave in 91 because it was illegal here, you know. So you can imagine she's uh, supposed to be OG or the <laughs> trailblazer, you know, that kind of way. So, yeah. Uh, OK, so um, high intensity, high energy, mm-hmm. uh, get an early lead. What's the what's the what's the uh, Chantel Cameron camp? What's their plan? How do, do they want a war, a war early? Kind of assert um, the fact that you're the bigger, stronger fighter and then give Katie Taylor something to think about if you were plotting a win for them? Yeah. See, at, in, in female boxing, like even Chantel Cameron now, I think she's 17 and 0. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's got eight knockouts, but seven of those knockouts are from her first 10 fights. Right. Katie's what, 21, 22 and 0? She's got six knockouts, but their last 10 fights, their last world, seven, world. they're against... T- High opposition, yeah. and you've it's very rare you see knockouts in the female weight classes at the higher end of it, like you know, at the at the world title stage and undisputed. So, knockout in this probably not going to be, I, I can't see it, I just can't see it. So, they're going to be looking at points, obviously, you know. So, they'll know that Katie is very quick, very fast, very sharp, and everything that she does. So, they're going to be trying to warm in. I don't think they'll, I don't think they'll send Cameron all guns blazing in the early rounds I think they'll want right. her to warm into this fight because it is a big occasion she can get very overawed especially if if she starts a bullying in in the first round or two and gets clipped by Katie and gets embarrassed gets humiliated that can affect the whole game plan so I'd say she'll try and really start trying to warm into the fight finding her shape and distance and I'd say probably in around a mid like you know, after a couple of rounds at least anyway they'll probably, they'll probably try to start turning the screw and uh, turn the heat up on Katie you know so um, not exactly sure what their game plan will be obviously but um, again you're going to in order to beat Katie Taylor you kind of have to do a li- do what she's doing a little bit better but I don't think she has in her locker anything better mm. than what Katie has you know so it sets up for a really good high octane fight but I see Katie coming out on top in the end. Okay, well, that would be a good result. And then we'll get another fight in September in Croke Park. And hopefully if the weather so- signs on that. Because I think that we're probably, well, maybe people aren't ready for this yet, but we're entering the end of Katie Taylor. This is definitely the beginning of the end. Like, yeah. there's not that many more fights left. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and it's just great. Isn't it wonderful to see her back home on, on Irish soil? And I was just thinking about... I'm going to two big fights within the next week and I don't have to get onto a plane. I'm going to Katie Taylor's fight and I'm going to Michael Conlon's fight, you know, and that's yeah. brilliant. You know, that is brilliant to be able to say that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of Irish guys getting the chance to box on the undercard as well and it's brilliant. My old gym mate, Thomas Carty, you have Gary Cully, who's on the rise, Dennis Hogan, um, Cuevan Agarco, and then you have a lot of guys on the undercard of Michael Conlon's fight too, Malai, Anto Kakachi, etc. You know, so look, it's great, great time for Irish boxing. I never saw this coming over the last couple of years. So you know, um, thank God. Well, fingers crossed that it, uh, it all goes well. Uh, Eric, thanks a million for that pleasure. Here is some Eddie Hearn goodness for you to um, uh, whet the appetite further. We've seen Katie headline Madison Square Garden. You know what a fight that was. What an occasion that was. We 
she said this is her biggest test yet. You know, she has to jump up in a weight as well. Is that a bit of a risk, do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, she's stepping up in weight. She's fighting a bigger opponent. She's fighting definitely a fresher opponent than Amanda Serrano. Chantel Cameron has believed for many years she wins this fight. And Katie Taylor's always said for many years, I'll take the fight. But now it's become big enough, it's happening. But, you know, this fight's going to unfold very quickly. Chantel's going to force the action and try and engage in that war as soon as possible. And the problem is with Katie, she's so stubborn. You know, she might have tactics to box and move for the first half of the fight. As soon as she starts engaging and the free arena erupts, we're going to go straight back to Madison Square Garden and that moment against Serrano where they're going toe-to-toe. And it's going to be a thriller. Yeah, I spoke to Chantel and she said she's in the best shape of her life. She's never felt better. Her preparation went perfectly. You can see she is really ready for this. But you, you go to that next level when you're in those kind of fights. You know, you know that when it got tough for Chantel in training him, she was thinking she's fighting Katie Taylor. She pushes harder, she pushes deeper, she becomes fitter, she becomes stronger, and now she comes into this week just full of confidence. She's the champion. Katie's the challenger in this fight. You know, she's trying to take the belts off Chantel Cameron. And uh, both girls very confident going into this fight. Right, Eddie Hearn in conversation yesterday uh, with Ashling. I think Eddie Hearn is on Talking Bollocks. He's going live today around about 5 o'clock. Um, so, uh, very interested to hear how that's going to go. Uh, now, uh, our own Cameron is here. Yeah, absolutely terrified. Uh, Cameron, how are you? A uh, bit worried, bit Trying worried. Trying to make a Cameron, Archer, Archer, mm. Cameron, Hill. But it didn't work. It's, no, uh, I, apparently I'm fighting Katie Taylor this weekend. Yeah. That seems a bit bit of an L for me. Um, That's the look. So I'm going to go to Berlin because I, I kind of feel like there's a, a George Costanza mix-up brewing where I end up in the three arena in the ring. and um, Stumbling into the BBC studios one day, the taxi driver. Did you ever see that? Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. That would, that would be... Typical me now, so I'm going to try so and... You're going to be... The uh, Zone is actually, like, basically the main TV sports channel in Germany anyway, so you'll be on your The Zone on the phone, yeah, yeah. on a local phone, in the queue for Bergheim on Saturday nights. That's it, that's it. So it's all working out, but I just thought a bit of bit of land and water between us mightn't be any harm at all. Do you think you're going to get in? To the Bergheim? <laughs> oh, well, we're not We're not even trying. <laughs> it's not worth it. Um... We're we're gonna keep it low key. I'm actually going axe throwing. Okay. There's a bar apparently in Berlin where they do. The, the, it's a bar, and then there's just a big wooden target. That sounds down safe. Yeah. Really safe. Yeah. And my friend was saying, "Oh, we do it all the time." And I was like, "That's a bit concerning." He said, "Oh well, no, sorry, we're actually beginners." And then I couldn't work out which was worse. So um, if I come back with uh, less limbs, you'll know why. Okay. I didn't expect this to be uh, an interlude into Cameron's travels this weekend, but uh, if the if the if this is what you want, leave a note in the comments and we'll we'll find out how we got on next week with his review of Berlin. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, uh, you were here to do <laughs> to do the sports pages. <laughs> yeah, um, I have, you don't have any papers in front of you. No, no, I have a distinct lack of. I was going to say papers. there's like a there's a slight um there's a slight the issue format, yeah. Up here, yeah, 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 a little bit yeah format issue there, but. Uh, We'll crack on anyway. Can I can I imagine what's on the sports pages? Uh, or you could uh, give us your prediction for the Champions Cup. <laughs> okay. Um, interesting one. I was at the one in Marseille last year and um, I was... Cheering for Munster? Uh, cheering uh, for Munster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, w- <laughs> I was going as a neutral and then I think just... Um, Oh, you got carried away like everybody. Infe- yeah, yeah, the infectious yeah, yeah. nature of the Larry Show. running Connacht fan, yeah. cheers against Leinster. What a surprise. Oh, uh, well, you know, I thought with Delan coming uh, in the after season, maybe, you know, I thought I'd give uh, my support to Stad Hoshili. But um, the 
the um, atmosphere was absolutely incredible. And if it can be replicated at all um, this weekend, all the better, because the La Rochelle fans brought it last year. So I think the Leinster fans will have to seriously up their game, as I'm sure they will. Uh, It's very touch and go, isn't it? Um, In terms of the result, I think Leinster are going to scrape it. I I really do. I think... um, I think they will have an answer. There's that hurt from last year, obviously, that it went down to the wire and they just didn't have enough. I think they have much more of a belief despite last weekend's result um, against Munster. I just, I think they're going to be able to cope. Okay. Cameron, uh, enjoy Berlin and Thank I'm looking you. forward to your next paper slot with no papers. Hey, there we go. Paperless paper slot. Going <laughs> it, green. It's 8.54, OTBAM Live with Gillette Labs. Got the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. What does the data say? Derek McNamara is back with us. Good morning to you. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Derek. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, keeping well. Are you excited about this? I'm very excited, yeah. Like, it's been a pretty spectacular season for uh, Irish rugby, for Leinster rugby, for Munster rugby. Um, you know, it's been, a, you know, an undoubted success if you're looking at it from an Irish perspective. Um, four four you, teams in the Champions Cup next season yeah, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Similar to you, uh, your game against Manuel Sullivan. I, I, yeah, it's up there. Did, did I see a touch after the, you potted the second ball? You, I, did I see you thinking, I'm going to beat Ronnie O'Sullivan oh, here? You, you start to get excited <laughs> you're ahead of yourself. Some of the comments said Ronnie had actually cheated as well. I mean, listen, I, I'm not saying I'm better at pool than Ronnie O'Sullivan, but uh, yeah, sometimes you can see the success in your eyes. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's up there. So, no, look, it's been, it's been an amazing um, couple of months, really, you know, and we've got to take that into consideration. Um, and, like, if we look at it from an analytical perspective, you know, when these teams start off at the start of the season, right, it's it's nearly like a line, right, where you've got, say, you've got a really good player who, you know, you, you know is really, really good. You can push that player to try and get them into good positions or get them into positions where they can make a bigger impact so that you can win. Um, or else you've got a, you know, a better skill set. So you've got a better skill, so, say, uh, kind of rooking. You push that because you know that you're better at that than other teams. Um, and then you can do it, say, you know, for backroom staff or you can do it from, say, a physical, mental, technical, and tactical. If you have a way of measuring those things. So like the Munster last weekend, you know, Leinster, you know, had a, a coaching melt melter, to be honest. You know, if you've got two, maximum three games left in the season, you play your best team no matter what. Like, that's just, you know, in nearly every other sport you do that. Yeah, but then what if one of them gets injured and you miss it? You, you run that risk anyway. You don't. I mean, you didn't, you didn't play them. Like, they didn't play the front row. They didn't play first choice second row. They didn't play their first yeah. choice nine or ten. They didn't play the first choice fullback but or the, their wings. The team that they played was a mismatch of both. Right, you're nearly better off putting on your total seconds team. That the chances of those players ever playing together, let alone even coaching together, you know, during the season, it's it's not just about you know putting out players and expecting them to win. There has to be a plan. And if you're if you're in the NFL or you're in playing soccer, or you're playing any of these other sports, they're physical sports. You you want to keep that small incremental steps and in learning playing together. So two s- games in in a situation where they had played their full full bore last week, mm-hmm. right? And we know La Rochelle rested basically there for first choice. Mm-hmm. Which which coach would you rather be? I'd like to be the Lancer coach. Well, had they won, but now that they now you see in the media the entire like <laughs> in the entire media are like, are Lancer going to lose? But this team hasn't lost a game. This team who've played together, whether it's for Leinster or for Ireland, the last time they lost was against La Rochelle this time last year. So 
like this line that I was talking about, you know, Munster were able to push the physical side of things because Leinster, they knew Leinster weren't going to be at the races. They pushed the physical side of things. Or if you look at the likes of Liverpool, or not Liverpool, um, Arsenal this year, okay, where they had a really young team, really young uh, background or staff, um, played fantastic, you know, free-flowing soccer at the start of the season. And then, you know, as the season went on, they just weren't able to actually keep that up and very similar thing that happened to uh, Liverpool before they won the, the champion or the the league a couple of years ago. The season before they fell apart around the same time of the season. And what they did is they used analytics and data to measure kind of what what it is you need to do to get to uh, a point of winning the league. And that's the way they're able to bring in the specific ta- players who are able to come in and play at a specific level. And that's quintessentially what analytics is is having a way of measuring yourself versus all your other teams that are out there. And <clears throat> what we do in Rect Rugby is specifically, well, we help with all that type of measuring, but we also help with what's happening in the game. And when you get to professional, when you get to the elite level, you're able to then implement game plans based on the analytics, based on where your line is compared to where the other line, you know, your opposition's line is. Um, and, you know, what I thought would be a good idea, a good exercise is to look back at last year's, to some last year's, and look at the game, the, the final last year. Because it's and actually going to be largely the same <coughs> Leinster team, with uh, obviously mm. the exception of uh, the 10. So yeah. I think we expect it to be a very similar starting team. There might be one other change, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like, and look, if, if, if we were to look at, you know, where La Rochelle are compared to where they were this time last year and this year, they're kind of roughly the same in certain elements, certain skill sets, but passing they've improved significantly and they've improved in the back row as well. So they're, they're seven with Botia playing now. He's significantly improved them. But if we were to look at what Leinster have done between last year and this year, they have significantly improved in nearly all areas. And if we put those two lines together, you know, Leinster are still significantly favoured, but they were this time last year as well. Um, I don't remember what the odds were last year, but uh, the spread. Which? I think there were 10 points last or 11 points last year. Okay, I think, were. I think it opened this week at around 11, but it's down to 7 now. Is, yeah. is, is what the, so a lot of money's come for La Rochelle this mm. week, is what that means. Yeah. Like a, a really significant amount of money. If I'm right, if it, if it did start at 11 earlier and it's now 7, it's not like a few 50 quid here and there. That's a big amount of money that would yeah. come from. It's bringing it back, bringing it back. Yeah. But if, if we look at what happened last year okay so if we look at what La Rochelle did prior to the actual game okay so basically when they're creating a game plan they looked at kind of three main areas and I think we have a slide here just to show that so basically they went out to disrupt the game plan is this last year's plan this is last year's game plan okay so they went out to disrupt Leinster's game plan hold on to the ball and disrupt the breakdown okay so the first one when we say disrupt Leinster's game plan okay they basically um there's basically the two lines of game plan, and uh, prior to the, the games last year, it was identified that Leinster had a significant drop off in the second half. Okay, so La Rochelle would have known this. So the idea was: is how do we stay in the game? The when first you say half? they have a drop off in the second half, what do you mean? So the accuracy of players, the accuracy of the breakdown, the the overall performance of the team had a significant drop off. Whether it's passing the ball, the accuracy wasn't as good. Whether they're entering the rook, the accuracy wasn't good, or whether or not they were making making tackles or missing tackles. So there was a significant drop off in Leinster's performance last year. In, so over the course of the season, in, in yeah, over the over the, the last three or four games leading up to the final. Okay. So when when we had the line of Lancer, there was a significant drop off in the end of the second half, but uh, La Rochelle's was nice and straight. But in the first half, La Rochelle was significantly uh, less 
uh, or weren't as good as Leinster, basically. So La Rochelle had to disrupt Leinster's game plan, and they did that by understanding where uh, Leinster's carrying came from, which was their back row. So that was their biggest threat. So they were able to blitz uh, in midfield to take away that first uh, receiver off the second pass, you know, the behind Sexton and the pod. Yeah. So they were able to blitz the slow down Leinster down. That would tend to have been a, a back row. Yeah, and so so we don't have to worry about all the other carriers. We just need to worry about the back row. And so that that's a cue for the defence because again we were talking to James Tracy about like mm-hmm. um, tells and, and things that you see and, and uh, you know in the analysis you're you're waiting to see stuff those patterns emerge and when they emerge then you know okay I actually know where the ball is going to go here yeah. um, because you've done the work in advance. Yeah, and that's exactly so. Um, Lara Shell would have known this last year. Um, so basically, if they were able to disrupt Leinster's game plan in the first half and slow that ball carrying down, then they knew in the second half the data shows that they they could you know they got a better bigger chance of winning. Um, and that those trends don't aren't there this year. Okay, so there's no drop off in Leinster's performance this year. It's it's steady the whole way through. They're not making the same mistakes. The substitutions that they're making, they're making a little bit earlier or a little bit, um, you know, uh, injuries this weekend is going to be huge because two teams are going to go out of hell for leather. If Leinster can avoid getting an injury earlier on, then it's a massive, massive bonus for Leinster. Massive bonus. Um so the second thing that uh, Lara Shell like to do is like they like to hold on to the ball. Okay, so um, if they have the ball, then Leinster can't score. Uh, pretty obvious. Okay, but when we look at the data, um, they're happy enough to hold on to the ball in midfield. So they are in spend around fifty percent of the time in midfield. Um, I'm not sure if you remember um, during the Six Nations, Italy were similar. They had a similar type of game plan in midfield, but they weren't ever able to break the teams down they were playing against. And as a result, they weren't able to, you know, cause penalties. La Rochelle, on the other hand, they, they play really, really narrow. They're, they play more narrow than Ireland do. So that's something that, La- that Leinster will know this year is they don't need to worry too much out wide over the first, second, third phase. But as soon as they go through the phases, that's when they have to worry. Um, so then the last thing that they looked at is disrupting Leinster's breakdown. Can I just ask you about yeah. that? So say you know this is going to happen, but with the big beasts that uh, La Rochelle have... I know this thing that you're going to do to me and then you do it to me anyway and I'm like, oh man, it's even more depressing now because I could have stopped you but I just yeah. can't stop you. Yeah, so I think Leinster's defensive line has improved significantly. Um, so there's the way in which Leinster plays, again, very, very similar to Ireland, nearly identical, where they can play different patterns when they're in defensive line so they can actually close the door, they can sprint up, they can blitz, they can um, run up and stop every time the ball has been passed. So I'd expect to see those types of game plans being implemented this weekend. Where, it, and the other side of this whole thing is that there's, you know, we're going to talk about it in the breakdown is decoying. Okay, so when you get really, really good at implementing game plans, and you get really, really good at being able to measure the performance of your opposition, you can set decoys. So you can show as if you're doing one thing, but a matter of fact, that's just what the opposition wants you to do. Okay, so that's what I'd expect to happen when we look at the breakdown. Okay, okay, keep going. Yeah, so basically when we, when we look at the breakdown, so um, La Rochelle when they're counter-rooking, okay. Um, last season, when we took the last four or five games leading up to the final uh, in 2022, they contested around 60% of the breakdown with a 17% success rate. So what that means is is the average is around 51%. 
Okay, so Lara Shell contesting contesting yeah. the breakdown. So what seventeen percent means of success rate means they either disrupted, they either slowed the ball down, they either caused the ball to spill out, they turned a turnover, or they caused a penalty. Okay, so that's what that seventeen percent means. And it's seventy percent high. But it's it's not uh, unusual. Okay. It's, it's actually right around where everybody else is. Okay, so when we look at the actual final though. As La Rochelle actually contested 85% of all breakdowns. So they made it a war zone. Yeah, they did. Yeah, exactly. So they, um, the consequences of that is is that it draws an extra player in from Leinster's play. So rather than there being two players per rook, there's now three players per yeah. rook. And what that does is then it causes the pack line to not have players in the positions that they need to be, which disrupts even further what's happening in the game. Yeah, and the knock-on is Leinster scored no tries. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like so, while the success rate at fifteen percent um, is you know average, but if you do it way more, the average being at a similar number means the actual number of times that you are successful increases because you're yeah. doing it more often. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. It, it's also more physically wearing, I suspect. No, but see, that's that's the thing. So um, we'll go into that in a second, um, just around the individuals. But how you combat that? So something that probably Lancer didn't look into, which I don't know if they're looking into this year, but. I think they'd be silly not to is, is that if you're counter-rooking, if you're actually making an attempt at the, the breakdown, then that has a significant impact on what you're doing, okay? Because if you're... Leaves space behind you, you mean? Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, there's space either left or right of the breakdown. And what Leinster failed to do last year is do that pick and drive and the heat and the exhaustion and everything kind of... You know, they lost... Well, last play of the game, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. We're talking tiny margins here. Yeah, yeah, class yeah. teams. Yeah. So, but but the point here is is that if if Lara Shell go to do that this year, if they go to that kind of seventy to eighty percent breakdowns, then they're Leinster are going to know that this year. So this is how the game has evolved using data, using analytics. But maybe that's the bluff. Maybe this is the bluff. Uh, let's get to. We're going to get to that. So when we just look at, at La Rochelle, where they are now in 2023, so we've looked at their last five or six games. They're around 66 percent of contested breakdowns, which is which is high. You know, it's it's reasonably high, and um, with a success rate of 19 percent. Okay, so they've they've ticked up from where they were last year, but they're still in the ballpark of where they were. So they they can push that 85 percent if they want to. Um, but when we look at who, who it is that's responsible, so when we look at, at the final last year, we have Skelton, Aldrich, uh, how do you spell this name? Bourgois, is it? Bougery. Bougery, sorry, that's Bougery. How, that's how Raj pronounces it. I okay, think Bougery. Honest, right? So yeah. it's funny because when I, anytime I'm watching these games, I never have the uh, audio on because we're, we're always doing it. Like, so I don't know how to pronounce most of these names. Uh, Bougery. So basically we've got first, second, and third for people that are watching at home. And then we have the success rate. So Skelton slows the ball down um, around 20%, 25% of the time. So, you know, one in every four rooks that he hits, but he hits a lot. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the thing with Skelton is, is that he never causes turnovers. Okay. He just slows the ball down. So Lancer are going to be aware of that. They're, they don't have to worry about him stealing the ball. They just have to worry about him slowing the ball down. But if you, all you have to do is worry about slowing the ball down, then then that's okay. You can live with that. You don't have to put the players into the breakdown as you did So last if you year. identify what the threat is, you can deal yeah. with it. Yeah. So then Aldrich last year, who was number one, he had a significant impact on the final last year. He actually you know, stole a lot of balls. And Borgwan... Borgwan... <laughs> He actually had zero impact on the game, even though he, he hit 
I think it was like 12 counter-rooks in the game. This is specifically on the counter-rook, yeah. Yeah, yeah. this is on yeah. counter-rooking, okay. And Botia didn't play last season, okay. So now we'll just look at the last slide, which is 2023, okay. And Aldrick now has is nearly a, no impact again. Um, we have Skelton, who has, uh, again, a significant impact in the game, but it's just slowing the ball down. He, he doesn't turn the ball over. Um, and then Botia, who is... He doesn't hit as many rooks, but he's the guy that we got to worry about as a Leinster fan. He's their Tyburn. Yeah, yeah, very much so. He he's the guy who causes the penalties. He's the guy that causes the penalties or turnovers. But if you can live with if you can live with um, Skelton, we can live with Aldrick, and we can live with but Bartier. <laughs> Bartier. yeah, Bougery. Bougery, yeah, yeah. We, we can uh, can't live with Bougery. Bartier though. Sorry, Bartier, yeah. yeah. So we got that's that's the one thing and. You know, if we go, if we were just to go back to their initial game plan, you know, disrupt Leinster's game plan, stay in the game. They they can't just rely on the the three back rows to be worrying because Leinster's are, Leinster's game plan are much more dynamic. They can't just come off the line and sprint like they would against a, 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 a who was it the Dragons or the you know whoever they played in um, or Ulster. They can't just do that sprinting because the lines of running that Leinster run are so far superior to anybody they're going to play against this year hold on to the ball they, they, Larishel must hold on to the ball for at least 20 minutes of actual game time in the game um, and if they don't then they're going to be significantly disrupted and then disrupt Lancelot's game plan I just don't think that they're going to have that same success that they did last year because of the things that we've spoken about and because of the understanding around the breakdown of these players causing a distraction you know it's not real. It's it's. They may turn the ball over once or twice between those three players, Aldrick, uh, but Botia. If they just keep an eye on Botia, then and you know Leinster have another plan. I'm sure to take away certain elements of um, Lara Shell's game plan, which are pretty simple. Like really, there's not uh, there's not a hell of a lot to what they do in certain areas, especially the set piece. And um, they got to be really, really tight. So I know, I know you say there's not a hell of a lot to it, but like again, talking to James Tracy, he was like, mm. "Their mall is is uh, once once it gets going, and even in the papers today, the front row are talking about the scrum. We need to get the ball out of the scrum really quickly because once they get you going, once they get you moving, yeah. But, so so like, that 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 is one of those things that we use analytics to try and turn their strength into a weakness. So. They can't start a mall if they don't have the ball in the line-out. Their line-out is really, really simple. Like, really simple. Like, scarily simple. So, you know, that's where they would... Is that not a strength, though? Is that, like, From to, a Lara Shell's perspective? Yeah, if, if, if you have a very simple way of getting your... Getting to your strength fast. Yeah, but when you strength. have one player who's uh, lifting 41% at the time... So one of their players, I'm not going to mention who it is, lifts 41% of the line. So he's nearly involved in 100% of all the lineouts. So you don't need to worry about where that where the ball is going to go. You just need to worry about where that player is. Um, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Again, right? Say they say they're able to do that. You know it's coming, and they still manage to do it. Their their mall isn't actually that that good. Their mall is really really um, uh, what would you call it? It's really um, frenetic. Okay, so they get the ball down and they, they come at different angles to, to push the ball. But if you stop that at the, on, on, on its, at the start, and same with the, the scrum, if you can stay really, really tight and try not to push, just stay tight, they, they come on for the second push. 
Okay, so again, if Leinster know that, then they can. If they just stay tight, then depends. I think, who is it? Uh, who's the referee? I'll double check here for it. Um, South African dudes, is it? Yeah. Okay, then. Okay, and then they need to get the ball out quick. <laughs> Piper, <laughs> uh, isn't it? Piper, Piper, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Piper. it is. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of things, but like again, there's the, the number of scrums that have been played in in professional rugby has dropped by twenty percent in the last year. So there's there's not that element necessary in the in the scrum as there would have been. So you know, we're, again, we're trying to look at those two lines. If we're we're saying okay, Lara Shell are here. Lancer are here where La Rochelle slightly better you know after last week's performance I would say coaching they definitely have a bit of an up on the on the coaching as an overall product do they have better players no they don't like Ireland's like it's all of Ireland's team they're these players have been playing together for years this is the pinnacle of what they're doing we've got the World Cup in a couple of months are they better at skill sets they're slightly better at passing they're 10 is good, really amazing kicker. So they have to be really wary about giving penalties anywhere in their own half or in scoring position. But as a ten, as a as a threat, he's not a threat. He's a, he's a he's a he gets the ball and he ships it on. He doesn't even come onto the ball very quickly, so he doesn't take a flat. So he's not a worry. So there's there's all these things that are being said in the media, which is like okay, that's a really good perception on it. But in reality, when we look at the data. Lencer are favourites, and if they're only seven points favourites, mm-hmm. then I'd be. Maybe putting a few quid on it. Well, if I was in that thing, that is not gambling advice. Just by the way, <laughs> no, 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 I don't, I don't even gamble. <laughs> so you're confident that Leinster are going to win this weekend? Yeah, come on, all right, stupid. Finally, a bit of confidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah confidence, stupid. Okay, the, Derek, reactrugby.com. If anybody wants more uh, details, thanks a million. That's Derek McNamara with this preview in the game this week. A reminder: OTBAM live with Gillette Labs. Got the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon edition is available now. Make sure you follow us across all our social channels. Available on the podcast network today. You can catch. Wednesday Night Rugby Gavin Casey previewing the big fights and the hurling pod with uh, Will Paul and James uh, after the ads the male national marathon champion Kildare's own Martin Hoare live in studio during the ads you're going to hear a clip from the latest episode of the football pod where Paddy James and Tommy talk about Donald Logue's well publicised comments uh, also ran Grand National for also rans uh, the football pod is in partnership with AIB proud sponsors of the football hurling and camogie All-Ireland Club Championships check out the hashtag toughest for more you're listening to OTB AM. Right, we're turning our attention to athletics. I'm delighted to say Martin Hoare, who is an ambassador for the Irish Life Dublin Marathon and the Irish Life Dublin Race Series, is with us. Uh, the hugely popular race series runs through the summer and includes a 5-mile, 10k, 10-mile and a half marathon. You can enter at irishlifedublinmarathon.ie. Martin, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well. Did you run in today? No, thankfully I uh, got the train. So, run home, hopefully. You do normally run into t- town two, three times a week? Yeah, generally do, to be honest. It's a, it's a nice way. So, I've a bit of background. I have two young kids at home, a fairly hectic work life as well. So, um, anywhere I can get the training in, I can. So, and so you work in... In Ballsbridge. In Ballsbridge, and you live in Kildare. Where's your nearest train station? Hazel Hatch. Okay, so what, the train would take how long to get in? Um, oh, I'm a train conductor now. I'm about an hour twenty, right? I, I okay, say. Right. and uh, it'll take me about an hour, an hour twenty, an hour thirty, maybe to get in to run. Yeah, right. So it's actually, actually just as quick. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I'm not going to disparage Irish Rail. But oh, no, look, any yeah. delays with Irish Rail, I'll beat it. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, when did your running career start properly? When did you kind of think, okay, uh, I'm going to be fairly serious about this? Um, 
Fairly serious. So I dabbled a bit for, for a number of years. So I, I look to be honest. I, I played football for a long time from Maynooth. Um and to be honest, I kind of took a step change with work. Didn't really have the time for it to commit to and football. To football, yeah, at um, club level. In yeah, well, Kildare is fairly competitive yeah, now. Yeah, but it's just the, um, it's, it's like it's really interesting to hear that there's a pressure on club players to a point where they can't commit to it. Well, you have to look at the flexibility and working in Dublin with a, with a long commute, to be honest, is, is a big game changer. Um, so, to be honest, it was an easy decision for me and to be honest, I had a passion for kind of running um, and I started dabbling in, dabbling in running from, I'd say, about 2010. Right. Um, but I'd, I would say really kind of taking it quite seriously. Um, I know when Brendan Hackett came on as my coach in about 2017, um, I kind of took a step up on that. Um, then had two years of stress fractures, which um, was quite interesting. Um, but I learned a lot in it. So you kind of I learned a lot about myself and about how to manage training and load and everything during that time. So, um, a lot how, there. How did the stress fractures happen? Um, to be honest, it was just poor training. Um, so I had to learn really how to train properly. So going from where I was um, as quite a quite an amateur runner. Um, to learning how to actually take the load and, and to train. It's kind of like building blocks and getting my body able for the str- to be strong enough to hold it. Um, it, it, it takes a bit of time and a lot of learning, if I'm honest. Um, I'm just interested now, and I, I like a, we haven't um, thought about this that much, but mm. the difference between how we train in, in amateur sports, you know, our, our amateur soccer players, our amateur rugby players, our amateur GA players, and now you as an athlete who's winning marathons, um, is there a, is there an easy lesson that everybody could learn if you were to go back and tap yourself on the shoulder as a 15, 16 year old in Manute and go might train a little bit differently here how about, how about we try this um, look I think it's across every sport um, like it's it's not just a way of training the nutrition has changed everything has changed so the nutrition your strength and conditioning your core work has changed um, and just like when it comes to running load management so if you're in a field sport and I'm surrounded by kind of jerseys here but the field sports are a lot easier on your on your on your body because it's on grass it's, it's far more cushioning there um, it's only in the last few years that we've probably had the, the same kind of level playing field with the new runners coming into running that kind of gives you gives us the same sort of ability to to recover. Um, so, like as a fifteen, sixteen year old, I'm kind of tapping tapping that guy on the shoulder and saying, "Get get on the track and get out running quicker," nice. um, because that's probably what I was better able to do personally. Um, I probably lost a few years, kind of. Uh, I wouldn't say lost a few years. It's probably a wrong thing to say because I hugely enjoyed it, but um, I probably like would have loved to have done it a bit earlier. Do you think there's loads of people like that, like you, who are kind of, um, we have an untapped potential uh, when it comes to athletics because people end up playing field sports and, and really enjoying it, as you say, but that actually there is some kind of um, unearthed gems? Yeah, the, yeah, to be honest, the easy answer is yes, right? So um, athletics is like this huge potential. And if you look at kind of what our history was, so some of the people like Tracy, like Coughlin, like the history we have in athletics in Ireland is so big. Um, and it's, it's huge. Um, and some of the, like just the general standard of 
running back then at a club level was so much stronger and in depth than it is now and, and to be honest you kind of see I think the tide's coming back because I think athletics is becoming far more popular again um, I think it's becoming far like the flexibility and kind of just how people approach it is changing and like you'll see it to be honest, in this year's um, Irish Life Dublin Marathon that they're promoting kind of bringing more women back into into the long distance events and, and to be honest they have a whole range of um, of kind of promotions to kind of get that female participation up and to be honest that's the way it is it's to to get people more involved in the sport um, and just to, to, to do it really than to actually step back and Are you at peak age for a marathon or what, what is the peak age for a marathon is that the million dollar question or does it differ from person to person? I hope person? I'm not yet. Um, yeah, but no, the, the, there's a lot of different things. So peak age is probably late 30s, which turns out I turned 36. So, um, yeah, so I'm probably in the round where I should be. Um, but with the way things are changing, I think it's going, getting younger and younger for, for a marathon. Mm. Um, I, I suppose everyone's different, right? And as I said, I only really got into competitive, like the topper end probably in 2017, so I was quite late to it. And I didn't have, or I wouldn't have had the same, I suppose, track background a lot of people have. Yeah. So where you'd be quite specialised at, maybe some people might have been 3,000, 5,000 metres. I, I never, to be honest, I barely hopped onto a track in my life. Right. Um, only in the last few years I, I've started doing it to get speed. But to be honest, I always, to be honest, I, I was a footballer and... To be honest, I did that <laughs> instead. So it, it depends on your background. If you if you were very strong athletics background, um, what I'd say is you you come to the marathon a lot earlier, um, and you'd be a lot stronger at it. But it, other people like me, it probably takes a bit more time to build strength. Did it help having someone like Brendan Hackett? Like Brendan Hackett will be a name familiar to a lot of people in in GA circles in mm-hmm. terms of intercounty management and, and club management as well. Did it help having him on board because he, he understands your background as a as a GA player as well, but. You know his athletics. Uh, I guess knowledge is second to none as well. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, he's 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 a gem. To be honest, a gem of a man. To be honest, he um he he was the CEO of Athletics Ireland back in two thousand. So he kind of transcends both athletics mm. and GAA very very strongly. Um, yeah, he's huge. So sports psychology. I, I was only telling a story. Um, he plays a lot of mind games, um, which I, I never thought I needed a sports psychologist, but I don't think he actually does it with me, but he probably does. Like, when I was going into You just the, don't know it. Yeah, it just, you just don't know, and <laughs> indirectly it feeds in, but some of the things he's, he's told me over the years like have paid huge dividends in terms of racing. So I, I was telling a story recently about how in the build-up of the, the Irish Life Marathon, Dublin Marathon last year, um, he told me just basically... And he was right. I was in great form. We'd never talked about winning the national title. Mm. That was never even considered. wasn't even a pipe dream. The pressure was off. Um, there was no pressure. I went into it just kind of, let's enjoy this. <laughs> and I, my aim was really to be with the front pack at three miles. So going into Phoenix Park, I said, if I'm at that front pack, brilliant. It, like, that's where I want to be. And that, that was an achievement for me. Um, but he, he turned around to me before, he, and he actually went on holidays the, the, the week of the race, so he wasn't even around. But he told me basically, look, you're in great form. Whatever it will be, will be. There's n- nothing can hold you back. You, you could run 210, 215, whatever. You could run 225. You, you could win. You could not win. Just don't hold yourself back and don't have, any, don't have any limits on what you can achieve. 
and I remember going up Chesterfield last um, October and, and kind of remembering that and the, the group we split into two groups at how the close time. to the end of Chesterfield sorry it's only about three miles in okay so sorry this, this, this is, is very right, early okay, this well, is it broke into two groups and um, the, I got dropped into the second and I kind of said they'll come back and they came back within I'd say about a kilometre right um, and able to work my way through the field so being calm in the moment of crisis Pretty much, yeah. Right, that's really um, interesting. But yeah, like he, he brings a lot from, from other sports into it, from a sports psychology perspective. It, it, it does make you, you wouldn't think running needs all the sports psychology that you would maybe for other team sports. But it's the same thing because you, you're out I think your it own. Needs more. You, you, you panic. You're, you're kind of yeah. on your own for, like in a marathon, two, two and a half hours. At least in a team sport, somebody can catch you by the shoulder and say, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> but there's, like it's you talking to yourself. Yeah. For, um, for 26 miles, 385 mm. yards. Uh, so, did you know you'd won the national title when you crossed the finish line? Like, did you had you had you marked everybody along the way going? Yeah, so we were quite lucky. So, in the in the na- the national title race, so they'll have three cyclists, um, three marshals, one with each first, uh, second, and third. Okay. So we were in the group going through Crumlin, and there was about six of us, and I was kind of thinking maybe top five here, um, but as people fell off and kind of dominoes fell got into third cyclist then I got to the second and then I got to the first um, in around UCD so that's right. about mm. in about six miles to go um, so I knew I was in first um, and funny I was kind of petrified kind of thinking about what am I going to do in the national um, here with six miles to go 10k um, and the cyclist was telling me there's no one behind you so just calm down run slower right I don't know who, I don't know who he had the money on but <laughs> it wasn't me run um, and no and to be honest I, I saw my wife at, a, at UC or at RTE um, and to be honest she, she hit the roof so right. it, was, it was quite emotional okay wow to get, to get in from there okay so you're like you're kind of you see her from far away you, mm. you have a moment yeah wow that's mad yeah, I was going to stop, but then I think she would have killed, killed, killed me. <laughs> when does the psychology kick in? Because it's easy to be, you know, in that leading pack after. Well, not sorry, not easy. But if you're in the leading pack after three miles, it's easy easier psychologically to process that. But if you know you're at the in the first place nationally with you know six miles left, surely then the, the psychology starts kicking in. Do any doubts start kicking in? And you're like, Jesus, I'm I'm actually going to win here. Um, to be honest, I, I knew I, I could win from there. The only, to be honest, the only risk I had or the only concern, I, I thought my calf was going to pop. Right. So you're kind of running going, and the more people are saying slow down, and I was like, I'm not changing my stride, I'm not changing anything here. <laughs> I'm just going to run pretty much exactly as, as you're going to go, right? So like for, from a psychology perspective, look, the the Dublin Marathon, the Irish Life Dublin Marathon, it, it's known as a friendly marathon. The crowds are three deep. Mm. Like, and when you're winning it, um, like, to be honest, like, Hopefully, I get to experience it again. But when you're winning it, it's insane. Like the 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 noise level, the crowds probably like being in the Aviva. To be honest, this weekend, like it, it's quite hard to take <laughs> in, and you, you don't really take it in. So that last six miles, it was a blur of noise, yeah. familiar faces, and probably the cyclist in front of me having a little chat with me or whatever it is. But like it was just a big blur to get through. Like the mad thing about it is that amateurs can have the same buzz from the crowds as well like because they obviously come out not just to see the elite athletes a lot of the people stay there and, and a lot of people will have that moment with their families as well it was one of the things that um, we found over the years doing the triathlons is that there's an incredible community of people and while you're completely singular as you in the race you're actually part of this massive continuum all the way back to the great Irish athletes but also part of it it seems like a, a big movement of people who are back out in the roads 
racing and running. Um, and I, I think that you're right. There is. It feels like athletics is having a moment, um, uh, particularly our, our young uh, track athletes who are kind of um, just blitzing the world stage at the moment and such great ambassadors. With that in mind, what's your ambition over the next 18 months as somebody who's won a national title at Marathon? Um, have you... Have you a plan? Have you a dream? Um, a Paris dream, is it? Um, to be honest, I, I, I don't... Uh, if I'm honest, I probably haven't really thought too much about it. So, look, I've, I've incredibly difficult... Or, like, I have a busy job life. Um, I have two, two, two small children, another one due in August, so a third child um, as well. So, to be honest, there's, there's a lot going on. We have, a few, we have a few dadcast episodes which can help you out with that. <laughs> but there's one in specific that I might refer you to afterwards. But anyway. yeah, is it to do with three kids and a marathon runner, is it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but no, to be honest, um, my ambition over to be honest, 12 months, 18 months, it's just to get faster and to enjoy it. So this year I went to Rotterdam, got a, P, a personal best, as they call it. So two, two hours eighteen fifty-seven. Yeah. So broke that two twenty barrier, which I've been trying to do for I would say ten years. Um, so that was a huge like this is the sort of thing like it's a huge achievement personally for me and to be honest, my family and the support support I get from them. So like my ambition is to keep improving and just to keep enjoying it. Um, Paris, to be honest, I think there's going to be a very, very strong Irish contingent there. I hope there is. And I think there's going to be the, the national title race this year. With the way um, qualification for Paris and the Olympics is now in marathon running. How does it work? So, um, basically, they split it. So, 208 is your time qualifier. So, in the past, it could have been 218. So, 208 now. Um, so, they expect about 50% from that. Um, for the participants in the, mar- in the Olympics. But the other 50% is going to be um, points. So you can get points from your national title. So you get 50 points or whatever it is. Um, so basically, if you run a time, and the points will bring the time down. So at 2.11 now could be the equivalent of a 2.08, okay. 2.09, because you have those points difference from to the national. Up, yeah, okay. So all of a sudden, your national title race in Ireland or France or wherever it is, hugely, hugely important. Um, so it'll be a very interesting national title race. And to be honest, the Irish Life Double Marathon has has buddied up with the, and, and partnered with the national title for for a number of years now. So it happens in Dublin. It's the it's the centre stage. October Bank Holiday weekend is to be honest for marathon running. It's it's the Christmas of our right. e- of our year. So it, it, everything's going to be. It's, it's a very exciting year this year. Will you do a marathon be- between now and then, like a competitive one? Um, not a competitive one. I'm doing. Um, I'm actually going to Kenya next month um, for a week. Um, the firm I work with sponsor or support a, a charity for wildlife conservation in Kenya, and they um, about ten people globally go over or fifteen go to run a, a marathon in. It's called a Lewa, so it's at six thousand feet and thirty five degrees. All right. Um, nice so handy one for you. Yeah. Not not something I recommend anyone else to do. But um, to be honest, the opportunity came to go to go to a great great part of the world and support a great cause. So I kind of said, yeah, of course I'll be there. Okay. Um, so not a not a very competitive race because I, I I've never done altitude training or anything like that. So a bit of pressure on you though, I suspect. Um, in, that, in that, like, oh, confident. it's in Kenya, and they're the Company world, they're, they're the world at marathon champions. So I don't know how much there will be. <laughs> um, certainly, uh, in within the firm, anyway. Um, and so, 
there won't be any opportunity for you to pick up points other than at the um, at the national. You, you know, so like uh, it was a brief summary again, but you can pick up points at world majors as well. But so. from your perspective, this year, no, no. no. All right, okay. So um, there's a lot of eggs in the basket for this year's for a number of people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how many? When you said a, a big contingent, what's well, we have three marathon runners making the Olympics. So I think you can the max that you can put in is three. Okay, um, three male and obviously female as well. Okay, and so. Um, competition is fairly intense it, I think it will be to be honest um, I think a lot of people from looking like from kind of tracking and kind of seeing what's happening are, are keeping their I would say powder dry they're, they're definitely gearing up for a big push later in the summer um, and the interesting thing with marathon running and kind of going back to what we were saying about increasing female participation the really interesting thing is some of our female athletes and, and marathon runners in particular are actually relatively much stronger than the male counterparts when it comes to racing. Yeah. Um, so, like, when when you look at the female team we send, like, I think that'll be actually a, a far stronger team. I, w- I don't want to say far stronger, but, like, it will be relatively, uh, like, generally we have had a yeah. lot more success with, with female runners and in athletics. Well, I, I mean, I, I you know, Katrina McKiernan's marathon uh, exploits are obviously a massive target for everybody to try and reach but like if we ever have another Katrina McKiernan marathon we'll be very lucky and um, that'll be a superstar in the making uh, alright so the advice to everybody is try and sign up for the marathon uh, is it going to be a lottery again this year is there is that I- so the marathon is the, the so the Irish Life the marathon I think it's fully subscribed this year but it, there is an opportunity for um, transfers happening in the summer so that's okay. something new this summer um, but there's also the Irish Life race series so, so that's kind of of um, stepping up from five mile all the way through the summer to uh, basically gear you up for the for the marathon um, later in the summer. So that kicks off um, the 18th of June in Corky Park. So that's the five mile, uh, and then into 10k, 10 mile and a half marathon. And to be honest, personally, um, probably going back to last year when, mm. when you asked about it, um, like when I approached Dublin the Dublin Marathon last year I actually felt I was very weak on hills so I'm a Kildare man very very flat flat, flat yeah. area so there's not really much hills and actually the one thing myself and Brendan talked about was actually the race series so the Irish Life race series and using that as as, as actually how to build up into into the Dublin Marathon because each of those races are actually quite like the Dublin Marathon so a number of them take place in the Phoenix Park you can have a few drags in that and a few hills and actually that gives you an awful lot of strength um, to actually tackle the full marathon in October right. What's going through your brain during that two hours ten minutes? Do you know that a lot of people talk about running as freedom and their brain is nearly empty but from your perspective are you thinking about anything in particular or does your brain cross into strange territories or um, in the marathon, probably not. In training runs, definitely. Um, I'll I'll think about the ten emails I haven't sent or whatever else, like everyone else, and the probably the bin that I never put out. But um, in the marathon, you, you're very much focused on nutrition, like nutrition and pacing. Right. Um, so it probably getting the gels in, getting like yeah, carbohydrates in as early as possible, and really getting that in. Um, obviously water, and then just seeing what where you are in the, in the race and kind of p- pacing it on that. Um, there's not really a I'm not thinking about my holiday in the Dublin Mar- in the Dublin Marathon, if I'm honest. But um, like you definitely like the freedom. Like it, it's an incredible sport because mm. it, the freedom, the mental health, like benefits you get from from running is just it's 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 incredible. And like you do get to time. Like I will more than likely not come home from a run. I'll probably run home tonight and I'll have ten things in my my head to do straight away that I have to prioritize. So like it, it's great. Mm.
Listen, thanks very much for joining us, Shane. Did, did you run a marathon? Uh, did we manage to get through this whole stuff without you bringing it up? I, that doesn't. That I, yeah. I mean, sorry. The whole point of running a marathon is that you tell everybody you ran a marathon. Yeah, yeah. Probably in about twice the time this man ran it. How so. many have you done? I've only done one marathon. All oh, right, Dublin, twenty fifteen. Yeah. with you? I know. I'm mad to do the flat. Berlin's the flat one, isn't it? Yep. I'm mad to do Berlin because at least the, the ego will take a little bit of a boost, maybe, if I do proper training for it. So yeah. Ronnie Sullivan's got me back into the running buzz as well. There you He's go. mad for it, so. There you go. It's been a week of running on the show. And if you do manage to see a flash of blue when you're on the train from Hazel Hatch into Dublin, uh, bang on the side of the, the train and wish Martin all the best. <laughs> uh, Martin, thanks very much for joining us today. And um, we'll obviously keep an eye on the exploits across the rest of the season. It's 9.38 on tomorrow's show. Adrian and Shane are here with Alan Quinlan, Jilly Flaherty, retired Irish boxer and, of course, hero of Katie Taylor, Deirdre Gogarty. We've got David Brady previewing Mayo and Kerry. We have a live AI demonstration with Jess Kelly as well. Plenty more besides. Right now we're going to play out with uh, Gavin Casey talking with Joe last night previewing the Katie Taylor fight. Have a tremendous Thursday. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now.